guys, we're back for part two of the Murdoch saga. This is Mallory. And I'm Ashley. Welcome back to Rabbit Hole Happy Hour. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) We left you on a little bit of a cliffhanger last week. We will get more into that in a moment. I did want to mention, though... I completely forgot to tell you the ingredients of the drink we are drinking. We're recording this all in one night, by the way. So it seems like two weeks, but we did it all in one night. So we're still drinking the same thing. (laughs) So it's called a papaya smash. Or the pawpaw smash, if you will. (laughs) Yeah. The other word for papaya in some areas, I guess, is a pawpaw. I had to go search for a papaya today, by the way. Yeah. Kroger does not sell them. She did her due diligence. Yes. So I found one. It's a Mexican papaya, by the way. This is to make one. So two papaya slices, three-fourths ounce of agave nectar, and you put that in a shaker and you muddle the papaya. Then you add one and a half ounces of Añejo tequila, half an ounce of Aperol, three-fourths ounce of freshly squeezed lime juice, and one-half ounce of freshly squeezed orange juice. I did not have freshly squeezed of either of those, but I did have a fresh papaya. (laughs) And then you shake it and then pour it into a short glass. Yep, it's good. It is good. We took the agave out of it for the second round. Neither of us really like sweet drinks, so yeah. it was a little bit too much for us. But and we then, love tequila. We do love tequila. <laughs> we used to drink a lot of tequila. <laughs> Leave it at that. <laughs> and then I did edit the lime juice a little bit because it sometimes tends to be a little too limey. Anyway, that's the paw. I mean, the <laughs> that's, that's the, the paw paw smash. It's paw paw smash. Papaya smash. So we have a lot to get into today. Oh my God, we have so much. So the last episode was much shorter than this one is going to be. This is the meat and potatoes of it. So yeah, let's get into it, man. Unless you have anything else. Nope. Should we just give them a little recap of the 911 call we played where we left off? Yeah, I'm going to play just a little bit of the 911 call. If you want to hear the whole thing, I did play the entire thing on the last episode. If you have not listened to the last episode, I do highly recommend you do that because there is a lot of background that will be very important in what we're going to discuss today. So here is just a little bit from that 911 call. Okay, and are they breathing? 
No, ma'am. Are they in a vehicle? No, ma'am. They're on the ground out at my kennel. Okay. And did you see anyone? Okay. Is he breathing at all? No. Nobody. Is she? Okay. Do you see anything? Do you see anyone in the area? No, ma'am. No, ma'am. What color is your house on the outside? Uh, it's white. You can't see it from the road. Okay. Is it a house or a mobile home? It's a house. Okay. And what is your name? My name is Alec Murdoch. Okay. Did you hear anything, or did you come home and find them? No, ma'am. I've been gone. I, I just came back. Please hurry. We're getting somebody out there to you. And please hurry. Uh, we're getting somebody out there to you. Me asking you these questions. Don't slow them down, okay? Is he moving at all, your son? I know you said that she was shot, but what about your son? <laughs> Nobody. They're not. Neither one of them's moving. And does anything look out of place? Ma'am, I, I not not particularly, really. No, ma'am. Okay. Okay. So, from what we heard. Alec is clearly in distress. And he tells the 911 operator that his wife and child have been shot. Badly. Badly. He says neither of them are breathing and they are both laying on the ground at his kennels. The 911 operator was very patient, by the way, but the way she intonates her... Mm-hmm. Sentences drives me insane. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> and What's are the they again? breathing? What's the address again? I'm sorry, lady. You do a great job, but holy crap! And are they breathing? But at least she was very clear. I mean, yeah. I don't know. Whatever. What also drives me nuts is the horror that Alec displays when he's being asked if his home is a house or a mobile home. <laughs> a house! A house! <laughs> I don't feel bad making fun of this guy, dude. He's... Is it a house or a mobile home? <laughs> a house! <laughs> oh my God. So then Alec eventually says he needs to hang up so he can call some family members. So police and EMS arrive on the scene at 1025. Wait. Oh. He hangs up with 911 so he can call some family members? Oh, yeah, we didn't. I just breezed right past that. Yes, he did. Isn't that weird to you? I think it's very weird. I would want to stay on 911 the entire time. Because someone literally blew the head off your child. I know. Well, so who is out there? What's going on? Be on the phone with nine one one. Like, well, you'll see. He, I mean, I'm sure you know already, but he goes up to the house at some point and grabs a gun. Oh yeah. But yeah, he wants to hang up with nine one one to call some family members. What to tell them? What? I don't know. 
What's Ooh. more important than to get his fucking lawyer relatives there exactly. to help? Or? That's actually exactly what it was, probably. Which is so nuts. Yeah. So, yeah. Police and EMS arrive on the scene at 1025. And then there's some body cam footage I want to show you. So I'm going to play that. I'll describe it after we watch it since I know you guys can't see it. So, and we'll put it on our Instagram as well for you guys. This body cam footage, I'm going to give a trigger warning for because they describe kind of like what he saw when he arrived on the scene. So it involves disturbing imagery. So Mm -hmm. please fast forward if you would not like to hear that. Central 717 senior secure at a whiskey fox, whiskey mic, both gunshot wounds to the head. I want to let you know because of the scene, I do. I did go get a gun and bring okay. it down here. It's in your vehicle. It, just, do you have any guns on you at all? Leaning, no, sir. It's leaning up okay. against the side of my car. Okay. You're, you're fine, man. You're fine. Turn around for me. I don't have any. Guns. Okay. Yes, sir. I see that. Okay. This is your wife and son. I'm fine. Okay. It's bad. Check the pulses. Yes, sir. <laughs> this is the firearm you brought from inside the house? Sir, yes, sir. I went get. This is a long story. My son was in a boat wreck a few months back. He's okay. been getting threats. Most of it's been benign stuff we didn't take serious. Okay. Um, you know, he, he's been getting, like, punched. Um, I know that's somebody. I know that's what it is. Okay. When did you get home? Right, um, right when you called, or did you go to the house first? Where is the house? I came to the house first. My mom has late stages Alzheimer's, and my dad is in the hospital. Okay. I left. I don't know what time. I can go back on my phone and tell you the exact times. Did you check? Okay. Did I check what? Did you check them? The, the, we got medical guys that are, that, that's, that's, that's what they're going to do, okay? Uh, what are they doing? Can they hurry? They are. Yes, sir. The, that gentleman that was out here already, he's one of the battalion chiefs, okay? How did you pull up you, from back there? I went to the house, and they weren't home, which was odd. I tried to call, okay. and then I knew they had been down here before I left to go to my mom's. Okay. And so I, that is loaded. Okay. Um, you might want to unload it. But I mean. Is this the only firearm with you? This is the only one, or is there any more in the truck? I believe that's it. You think that's the only one? Okay. I'm 99%. Do you normally so have right. any other firearms in your vehicle? I don't, but occasionally okay. there, occasionally there's a pistol in there. Okay. Just wait right here for me for a second, okay? Central. All right. <laughs> yeah, the police are here now. The police are here now. That's our minute. my brother okay when was the last time you were here with them or talked to them or anything like that um it was earlier tonight uh i don't know the exact time but okay i left i was probably gone an hour and a half from my mom's and i saw them about 45 minutes before that Okay. I rode around with Paul for two hours this afternoon in the, in the pickup truck. That's your son, Paul? Okay. Is somebody going to check him? 
Yes, sir. They, they've already checked them. <laughs> they did check them? Yes, sir. It's official that they're dead? Yes, sir. That's what it looks like. <laughs> I'm sorry. Mm. You're fine. Mm. <clears throat> I'm very sorry. <clears throat> so, Alec is seen pacing around wildly while sobbing. He tells the officer that he has a gun with him. Because of what happened to Paul and Maggie, he had told... I guess it's on a separate... I don't know if it's a separate... He said on the 911 call. Yeah. He's like, I'm going to go to the house. Get my gun. Yeah, because of what happened to Paul and Maggie, and he didn't feel safe or whatever. Yeah. Yet he wants to hang up on 911 to call his family. Which is Instead of staying on the line with them. Yeah. Anyway, within... Literally two minutes, he tells the police officer that Paul was in a boat accident. Within two minutes. That came too fast. It was liter- It was before two minutes. It was yeah. the second thing he said, other than, I got a gun from my house. Yeah, the officer is over there down, leaning but... against the car. Yeah. And then he's like, my son was involved in a boat. Yeah. Like, immediately. Immediately. He's been harassed. He's been punched. Yeah. I think it's related. The officer should have been like, sir, I did not ask. (laughs) Sir, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, like, what would have been your reaction? Like, okay? Okay? Yeah. Like, what? He must think everyone is so on top of his family's life. He must. Or he was just ready to get his story out of the way. Oh, yeah. He was like, this is what it's got to be. Like, he could not even hold it in because he's so nervous. Yeah. Right. Right. Because he's probably been playing it in his head. Anyway. (laughs) So he asked if they checked Paul and Maggie, and the officer says they're working on it. And then a couple of minutes later, you hear Alec on the phone with someone who, well, supposedly he claims it's his brother. We'll talk about that later. The cop asks him when he last talked to them, and he says it was approximately, I added the time together, two hours and 15 minutes prior. He says he and Paul rode around the property earlier in the pickup truck. And then he asks again if they've checked Paul and Maggie. And the cop says, yes, they've already checked them. And he asks if it's official if they are dead. And the cop says, yes. And then Alec apologizes for being distressed about the death of his wife and son. And he has no reaction to the fact that the officer said, yes, it's official. They're dead. Yeah. He's just like, oh, sorry. Yeah. It's just like. In my opinion, I know everyone reacts differently to things, but it just seems like a 100% act being put on. That is my opinion as well. Well, I go into that a little bit too, because I always type out like exactly what I'm going to (laughs) say in my notes. So I have some opinions expressed about his emotional behavior. Yeah. And whether or not it seems genuine. I will talk about the scene in just a minute, but I do want to go ahead and play part of an interview that he has with the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, or SLED, officers. This interview was given at 1 a.m. on the same night. You can see that they're in a car, like a cop car that's on scene. I believe it's on scene. So I'll play. I'm sorry. This is very... Video and audio heavy <laughs> this episode. <laughs> I have a lot of multimedia to show you. 
All right. Um, as I stated, I'm David Owen and uh, Laura Rutland with Collington County and I'm with SLED. I hate to have to do this. I but, understand. Yeah. I totally yeah. understand. Yeah. So you don't you don't have any problem yeah. with it. So um just start the top, take your time. Um, like when I came back here, mm -hmm. I mean I pulled up and I could see them and you know, I knew something was bad. I ran out. I knew it was really bad. My, my boy over there, I could see it was. I could see his brain on <laughs> and I ran over to Maggie and uh, actually I think I tried to turn Paul over first um uh you know, I tried to turn him over, and uh, I don't know. I figured it out. Um, uh, his cell phone popped out of his pocket. I started to try to do something with it, thinking maybe, but then I put it back down really quickly. Um, then I went to my wife, and I, uh, I mean, I could see... Mm -hmm. Did you touch Maggie at all? I did. I touched them both. Okay. I tried to take, I, I mean, I tried to do it as limited as possible, mm -hmm. but I, I tried to take their pulse on both of them. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and, um, you know, I called 911 um, pretty much right away, and she was very good. Um, <clears throat> I talked to her. Um, I told her I was going to get off the phone to call some family members. <coughs> I did that. Um, and, um... How many family members did you call him? I called my brother Randy. And I called my brother John. And I tried to call a little boy, real good friend that's right around the corner from here, but I didn't get him. Okay. <clears throat> <clears throat> what all was around um, Paul when you walked up? Blood. Any any other anything else? I mean, there were some body mm -hmm. things, yes, sir. I mean, like any other evidence? I know you said the phone fell out the pocket. Um, but did you see anything else that didn't belong or shouldn't belong or that wasn't part of Paul? No, sir. Not, no, not. To... No, sir. How about Maggie? No, sir. You didn't see anything around them? What made you come out here tonight? Um, I went to... My mom's a late-stage Alzheimer's patient. My dad's in the hospital. 
um, my mom gets anxious when she does. I went to check on them and Maggie. Maggie's a dog lover. And she fools with the dogs. And I knew she'd gone to the kennel. I was at the house. I left the house and went to my mom's for just a little while. Tried to call her when I left. Texted her, no response. Um, when I got back to the house, the house was obviously nobody was in there. So I figured they're still up here fooling around. Paul was um, going to be getting set up to plant. Our sunflower seeds got sprayed and died, and he was refiguring to do to plant the sunflower seeds. So I came back up here, and I drove up and saw and called. <laughs> Had Maggie and Paul been arguing over anything? No. <laughs> Do you have anything to want to say? <laughs> <laughs> I want to say that I'm not going to play the rest of this interview because, God damn it, it is so hard to get through. <laughs> oh my! Just that God. much was like grating. Yeah. Ugh. So, according to Alec in this interview, when he arrived, he pulled up and saw the bodies. And he said that he could see Paul's brain. He says he tried to turn Paul over first, and then he said Paul's cell phone had popped out of his pocket. He says he started to, quote, try to do something with it, thinking maybe, but then I put it back down really quickly. So he didn't finish his thought. What does that mean? Like, what were you trying to do with it? I think he looked at what was on the home screen, and what was on the home screen were all the texts Missed calls. Yeah. From his friend. Rogan. Rogan. Which, which we'll exp I'll explain. We'll explain later. Yeah, yeah, who Rogan is. Then he says he went over to Maggie and sled officer David Owen asks if he touched Maggie and he says he touched both Paul and Maggie. Tried to do it as little as possible and only tried to check if they were breathing, he said. Yeah, he said check if they were breathing, check his pulse. They yeah. said both. Yeah. He said both. He then says he called 911, quote, pretty much right away. He added that the 911 operator was very good. Very good. He provided a little bit of feedback on her customer oh, service. Oh, great. So he pressed star to leave her a very good review. <laughs> yeah, he left her a five-star review. He tells David Owen that he told the 911 operator that he was going to get off the phone to talk to some family members. He said he called Randy, his brother John Marvin, and a friend of the family and neighbor, which is Rogan, but he says he didn't get him. Owen asks what was around Paul when he walked up, but Alec doesn't understand what Owen is actually getting at and just says basically that there's blood and, quote, some body thing. But Owen is like, <laughs> no, I mean any other evidence, objects that didn't belong there, like not bodily... Yeah. Fluid or parts or some body thing. <laughs> <laughs> and Alex says he didn't see anything. And then he tells him that he was at his mom's house prior to coming back to the Moselle property where Paul and Maggie were. I don't think I mentioned that this property that they're at is, they call it the Moselle property or just Moselle. Because I think it was on Moselle Road. 
Mm-hmm. And they have another property in Edisto, South Carolina, which Edisto is close to the beach-ish, mm-hmm. I guess. And then he goes into, my mom is a late-stage Alzheimer's patient. And I went to go see her because she was agitated because his father was in the hospital. He had an illness. But, like, who goes that late to visit their right. mother who has late-stage Alzheimer's, who's most likely asleep at this hour? Yeah, absolutely. Um she was asleep. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's very bizarre. He just offers up so many details that normally I don't think anybody under this kind of stress would offer. Mm-hmm. And he is completely in a different state of mind than he is on the 911 call. Just calm. And he kept clearing he, his throat. And I feel like that is like a anxiety response. Like a tick. Like, a like, tick, yeah. like trying to buy him more time to think about the next thing he's going to say almost. Yeah. Now he did quote unquote break down once. Mm-hmm. Well, he breaks down a few times in the interview, but uh, honestly, like I, said, I don't know how anyone could get through that conversation without breaking down a million times. Like, no, he's you literally cool a cucumber. just saw your wife and youngest son in yeah. pieces. And he's like, yeah, I'll tell you whatever you need. Yeah, we're good. Yeah, I understand. I understand. Yeah. I understand. You you don't have any problem with it. <laughs> I don't have any problem with it. <laughs> and by the way, so he's in an SUV giving this interview. Yeah. And in the seat behind the officer is his lawyer. Yeah, it's his lawyer and there's another officer in the back seat. The lawyer, I don't know if he says anything in this one. I wonder if I have, I can't remember. I don't I, think he does, but he does have five buttons undone on his shirt dude this dude has so many like he basically doesn't have his front shirt buttoned and you can see his bare chest and then he's the one that's hacking in the background he's the one coughing yeah god like quit smoking or something i don't know (laughs) god so yeah he says that there's no one home when he got back to the house from his mom's So he went to check for them, and that's when he found the bodies. And like I said, this whole interview, it's about, it's over half an hour long. But I do want to tell you the rest of his version of the story at this point. And I think I can do that much quicker than playing the rest of the interview for you. Because the Southern drawl and his extra details just take so much time. It's kind of discombobulated because I Cause went you and go into the trial and the detail, like because we only know well, so much at that point. Yeah, and I did go through this interview and I kind of wrote it out like as they're asking the questions, so mm-hmm. it is a little out of order. But just remember that they're like actively asking him questions and he's answering those yeah. questions. So Alec describes Paul and Maggie's relationship as wonderful, and his and Maggie's marriage. As wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. And he describes his and Paul's relationship as, quote, as good as it could be. He tells sled officers that there have been no trespassers or anything like that on the property. And the only thing he can think of that could be related is Paul's boat accident. As Paul had been receiving constant hate and threats online and even had been physically attacked in public. 
And yeah, we know that people were mad at Paul for driving and crashing a boat under the influence, which ultimately caused the death of Mallory Beach. So that's true. But anyway, I don't know what my point was there. (laughs) Well, I mean, it had never been a serious concern until now. Like they didn't, they weren't concerned enough to do anything about it. There wasn't enough hate for them to even worry about it. Right. Until he was killed and his mother was killed. And that's when Alec decides... To bring it this up must as a right. motive. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was no big deal before. Yeah. He says that Paul and two of his best friends were getting ready to move into a house together in Columbia. And then Owen asks if there's anybody Alec can think of that they need to talk to tonight. And Alec initially says no. But then, I don't know if you remember this or saw this, but he launches into this crazy story that CB, who was their groundskeeper at the Moselle property, had told Paul the week prior. Do you remember this? Mm -mm. Oh, my God. (laughs) So CB told Paul that when he was in high school, he, quote, got into a fight with some black guys and that the FBI undercover team observed him fighting these guys. CB told Paul that the FBI put him on an undercover team with three Navy SEALs and that their job was to kill radical Black Panthers. Alec says this to the police officer. What? (laughs) What? So, and he acknowledges that it's a ridiculous story and he says that he doesn't... Oh, wait, I do remember that. (laughs) Yeah, and the officer's like, yeah, that's a little (laughs) far-fetched. Oh, my God. Grasp at any straw. Yeah. So Alec does say that he doesn't really think that CB was the one to shoot Maggie and Paul, but he said that that story came to mind, and he said CB was off that day. He said he had called CB earlier in the day because CB had sprayed their sunflowers with something that killed them. Oh, yeah. And they were going to have to replant them. And he said CB seemed normal during the phone call. And then he adds that he thinks CB and Paul get along really well. But he does acknowledge that CB is an idiot and he didn't think he was a good employee. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. I mean, he did kill the sunflowers. (laughs) Take it easy on him. Alec adds that Paul is a wonderful kid that can do almost anything and gets along with almost anybody. I guarantee you he doesn't get along with almost anybody. Oh, no. Guarantee you. Oh, no. Bye-bye. Owen then asks about weapons on the property. Alex says they frequently have weapons out at the kennels. He says that there was a 12-gauge shotgun, but doesn't know exactly when it was there. He says he will just have to find out exactly when that was. Okay. (laughs) All right. How are you going to do that? Yeah, how are you going to check your records? Like, Like, what? (laughs) Did you check them in and out? or Yeah. and going to consult a Ouija board and ask Paul. Oh, exactly. (laughs) Put it better than I could have. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. He says he thinks he put it up, but he wasn't sure. He says a shotgun was a camouflage Benelli or Beretta. He then says he actually doesn't think it was out at the kennels recently. Alex says they probably have 20 to 25 guns on the property, including rifles and pistols, and they are usually kept in the hunting room at the house. So... Alec tells the sled officers that Paul came home to deal with the dead sunflowers 
and that he and Paul actually spent 45 minutes to an hour, which is different from what he said on the body cam footage. I believe he said two hours then. Riding around all over the property. He said Maggie was in Charleston that day for a doctor's appointment. He says Paul got home before dark and Maggie arrived later than that at six or seven. He said it was not unusual for Maggie to feed the dogs at this time of night and very regularly fed them in the evenings. He also said it was not unusual for Paul to be at the Moselle property as, quote, it was his passion. He tells the officers that he only has deer cameras on the property, but no other type of camera, and none of the deer cameras were near the kennel. And then Alex says he laid down and took a nap on the couch for maybe 25 minutes before he went to his mom's house. He says Maggie doesn't normally go to his mom's house with him. He says he had called Maggie and texted her at 9.08 p.m. and she didn't answer and that it was very odd for her not to call him back or respond. He says he called her again at 9.45 and texted her again at 9.47. And then he says he tried to call Paul at 10.06. Remember that. Mm -hmm. One of the officers asks if he was able to flip Paul over successfully, and he says no. And then Owen ends the interview by saying that law enforcement will be at the property for quite some time and that the coroner will take custody of Paul and Maggie to do the autopsies. So now I'm going to do the description of the scene. So another trigger warning. It is gory. So fast forward. I don't even fucking know how long. Just keep going. (laughs) Why are you listening to this if you're going to fast forward (laughs) That's what I want to know. If you're if you're listening to this and you have fa- no, I'm just kidding. Some people have specific traumas, but yeah, yeah, we're just joking, just joshing with you. <laughs> so the scene was really grisly. I mean, as we just heard, one of the first things Alex says to the police in his first interview with Sled is that he could see Paul's brain lying on the ground, his full brain. Uh huh. Paul was found in the feed room at the kennel, laying in his own blood with his brain at his feet. He had been shot with a shotgun. I just want to add this little spice. When I was doing chart reviews for work, I once saw a victim of a shotgun shot to the head and saw how fucking horrible it is. There are pictures. It's completely shocking because you're basically just seeing like a deflated head. And it's, or like, chunks missing, or I don't know. It's really horrible. Okay. So somebody that had actually viewed the crime scene photos gave an interview to a news source about it, and they described it as, quote, his head exploded like a watermelon. I mean, you can see his face, but the rest Mm. of it, his head, is just gone. Yep. Totally empty. They were picking pieces of his brain off the walls. And I heard from the doctor who examined the body that his brain was detached from the brainstem and like fully just shot out of his head. Oh, my God. At least it was quick, I guess. Yeah. Damn. But that was the shot that killed him. He He wasn't dead right away. Right. Yeah. You get another gunshot wound. Another source who viewed the photographs confirmed that significant parts of Paul's head are simply not there. 
referring to the shotgun wound to his head and neck area. And then they just said much of his brain was just blasted out. Maggie was shot with a semi-automatic rifle. She was found lying face down outside the kennels. She had five distinct gunshot wounds. A gunshot wound to the left side of her torso and head include injuries to her left breast, lower jaw, ear, skull, and brain. Other injuries were identified to Maggie's left wrist, left thigh, her upper abdomen, through the lower back, and a downward trajectory shot to the right back of Maggie's head, injuring the skull, brainstem, cerebellum, and the right side of her upper back. Paul had two distinct gunshot wounds to his chest and shoulder and head, including an entrance wound to the left shoulder and side of the neck, proceeding upward from the front to back until the gunshot exited at the right side of the top of Paul's head. This injury produced a, quote, aspiration of blood into Paul's upper airway. That is a horrifying sentence to me. That means he inhaled at least once after he was shot. (sighs) Because blood was found in his airway. The second shot produced a, quote, cookie cutter pattern, which I'm not sure what they mean by a cookie cutter pattern. Because there's a lot of different types of cookie cutters. <laughs> yeah, is it like a heart? Is it a circle? Is it a is gingerbread it a... man? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. So that was in the left side of Paul's chest, and then it continued through his left arm. I guess it was just like a distinct hole is what they're saying, right? Maybe. I don't have a clue what they mean by that. I'm really not sure. Oh my god. Yeah. It's all the way on the top of the fucking door. Wow. Analysis also identified blood stains and body tissue from Paul on the entry door, threshold, frame, and wall, and ceiling above the door. It's a lot. It's everywhere. Splatter was also identified on items on the floor and the shelf to the right of the doorway, including a sack of dog food. Other evidence identified at the scene include hair found on top of the door and wall, skull fragments on the floor, brain tissue on the outside walkway, and footprints in the blood on the floor. Paul was found resting face down just outside the doorway with his right foot and shoe inside the threshold. So I think they think the footprints in the blood are Paul's footprints Mm -hmm. because he took a few steps after he got shot the first time. And the blood dripping off his fingertips is it like illustrates that he was still. Yes. My next sentence is the analysis indicates that Paul was shot in the chest first, then shot in the upper left shoulder and face as he was moving toward the door. Six fired cartridge cases from a 300 blackout semi-automatic rifle were found in a, quote, walking cane handle-shaped pattern near Maggie, indicating that both Maggie and the shooter were moving as each shot was fired. When investigators first arrived on the scene, Maggie's phone was actually missing, but they ended up finding it and using the Find My iPhone feature, and it was located the next day along a road not far from the Moselle property, mm-hmm. which is interesting because it's located on the exact route that Alec would have taken 
to his mom's house when he went over there. And the mom's house is called Alameda, right? Yeah. Alameda or Almeida. I've seen it both ways. But yes, that's what they call it. Okay. So Alec is then interviewed again by SLED. Again, Officer David Owen is there. We have the lawyer in the backseat again, but there's another new guy, and I'm not entirely sure who he is. Looks like their shirts are buttoned up this time. Yeah. (laughs) So this interview took place on June 10th, which is three days after Paul and Maggie were killed. This one is an hour long, so I just condensed it as much as I could. So Owen asks Alec again what he remembers doing on June 7th. He says he went to work Monday morning, and he says he thinks Maggie was at the house when he got up in the morning, and he wasn't sure if Blanca, their housekeeper, had made it to the house yet. Alex says he left work a little bit earlier than normal because he knew Paul was coming home to prepare for the replanting of the sunflowers. He says he wasn't sure exactly what time, but that Paul came home maybe around 5 p.m., and he knew it wasn't dark yet outside. He says he and Paul rode the property, quote, doing things we liked to do out there, which included, and this is what he said, looking at food plots, looking for hogs, looking at the dove field, checking on the corn, and doing a little bit of target shooting at little bottles with a 22 Magnum. He says they rode the property for more than an hour. That time frame changes, too. During this whole thing, I was like, why are they, these guys so obsessed with sunflowers? Like, <laughs> why do they need, why do they care that the sunflowers were sprayed and are dying? Like, why do they need to replant them? And then I learned that, in the trial, I learned that it's because sunflowers attract doves. Um, doves, yes. And they like to dove hunt. And I yes. was just like, all right, that makes sense. Yes, yeah. And then... Some field, they planted corn for another reason. Like, it wasn't even for fucking food. It was just for hunting. more animals to kill. Yeah, exactly. I went to Maggie Murdoch's Facebook page and was just, like, going through all of her pictures and things. Oh, yeah. I did go to it, but I didn't go very far back. And it is all pictures of her two sons and husband just posing with dead animals. Like, oh my God. hunting so much. Like, so many dead doves. So many dead deer. How do they keep a population there? Like, <laughs> Jesus. Like, why do you kill doves? Just for fun? I don't know. You, It has to be for fun. What do you... You eat a dove? No. No. No way. I don't know. So he says at some point he, Paul, and Maggie were all at the house together and that they ate dinner. He says they usually eat dinner together. And then he starts talking about, at this point, that Paul had been having high blood pressure and Maggie was really worried about it. He says then that Paul does not like to go to the doctor and that they were having a heated conversation at dinner where Alec and Maggie were trying to convince Paul to go to the doctor. In his words, it was a, quote, a big, huge deal. Yeah, he really was harping on this, like, Paul's blood pressure thing so much, like, hish. Feet were swollen. It was yes. His feet swell swell oh up. Oh my and, god! Yeah. So alarming. It's hot. You're <laughs> in South Carolina. Like it is. It is not normal. But because they did. Did you see the picture of yeah. his feet? They were pretty big. But <laughs> so that's related to blood pressure. Yeah, it can be. Oh yeah. But he poor, has, like, poor talking, circulation. He's talking about it like 
so much. Well, that's why I decided not to even play this fucking video because he just, it's everything he gives, there's too much detail. Yeah. Like, just shut up and give what you need to say and that's it. Yeah. I'm, just, I'm surprised his lawyer isn't like, shut the fuck up, dude. Talk you're, about You're talking way asking. too much. He did that on the stand, too. Oh, absolutely. That's who he is. Yeah. So he said after dinner, they hung around the house for a while and then Maggie went to go to the kennels. He says he does not know where Paul went, but he says Paul left the house too. He is asked how Maggie got down to the kennels, and he says he doesn't know exactly. But on normal occasions, she would drive a, quote, buggy, Mm -hmm. a four-wheeler, or it was very common for her to walk. I wonder if he means by buggy the golf cart. Yeah, and then he also mentioned, like, she would ride her bike sometimes, too. Oh, he didn't say that in this interview, but... Whatever I'm saying now is just what he said in this interview. And this is a fair warning. Like, I go over his story, like, four times total because it keeps changing. Yeah. (laughs) And so I will get to It would almost be better if I didn't know anything about this. So I didn't keep (laughs) interrupting with, like, details I know. Because it does change so often and, like, there's so many details. Yeah. So Alex said... He stayed in the house after Paul and Maggie left, and then he said he was watching TV, looking at his phone, and that he fell asleep on the couch. And then he said when he woke up, nobody was in the house. He says he doesn't know what time he woke up, but he thinks one of the first things he did was call Maggie, and then he texted her right after, so they should be able to get a ballpark from his phone logs. By the way, they took his phone and were downloading information from it while they were doing this interview. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because he asked in the beginning, he was like, oh, so I can get my phone back today? And they were like, yeah. Mm-hmm. So they took it from him in the car. And and why are they interviewing in a car this time? I don't know. They're in a car this time. I don't understand I why. I know they do end up in an interrogation room. They do. But you'd think, I mean, this is three days after. Why don't you just go to the interrogation? Yeah, <laughs> like, why I understand on scene. But well, everything is different for him. It has to be less condemning or less, you know what I mean? Like his son wasn't ever arrested. Oh. And when he was, he was, his mugshot was taken in a like normal shirt. It was normal a like, shirt. Yes. Like, and so you're, everything you're is, saying it's, it's for appearances. Yes. Yeah. 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 That's that makes sense. Thinking. Yeah. That makes sense. So he says he left to go to his mom's house pretty soon after that. And then he adds that, quote, he knows this sounds crazy, but he was certain that he heard them pull up to the house in a car before he left for his mom's. They asked him what it sounded like, what he heard. And he was like, I couldn't tell you what it sounded like. But then he said he walked out and saw a cat or something like that. <laughs> like, that does not sound real. Especially if you thought they pulled up. And then you see a cat. Yeah, a cat is not going to make a car noise. so he says he called a few people on the way to his mom's his brother john marvin chris wilson which is his lawyer friend and his other son buster then he says he checked on his mom and talked to shelly her caregiver for a few minutes he said he left his mom's got back home went inside and noticed nobody was there then he says he got back in the car and went out to the kennels and found Paul and Maggie dead and called 911. Then he says he decided to go get a gun from the house and then he drove there and back. 
And then Owen asks Alec who stands out in his mind that would want to kill Maggie and or Paul. Alec says he doesn't know anyone that would go to that extreme. Then they talk about the boat accident for a bit. And Alec comments that he doesn't know exactly who was on the boat with Paul that night. Oh, come on. (laughs) You talked to each and every single one of them except the one that died. And you should be able to give her a name too because... He had to have known what her name was. Oh, she was yeah, missing. For sure. And he was being sued. Yes. Like, he knew who was on that boat. Oh, yeah. He did. He knew. I'm surprised the police are even letting him answer that question that way because they should yeah. know. I know. he knows. Well, maybe that's what they're trying to do is catch him on. Like, I noticed in the first interview, after they asked about how his relationships were with Paul and Maggie... They asked him their birthdays. Mm-hmm. Kind of like, I thought that was kind of like a check just to see like how close are you? Like, do you oh, yeah. really know like their birthdays even? Or, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. I don't know. That was just something I thought. Interesting. So I think they're, I don't know. They're just like trying to catch him in a lie or. Yeah, or, or see verify. What lie about. Yeah, right. Owen then asks Alec what his biggest issue with Paul was as his father. And Alec says, irresponsibility. He says he was ADHD and had a habit of starting things without finishing them. He says Paul, quote, had clothes strung out all over the state and that he did that with clothes. He did that with guns. He did it with Alex boats. (laughs) He said he would often go away for the weekend and just not pack clothes because he knew he already had clothes at someone else's house. Oh, my God. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? Alex says Maggie got home after he and Paul had already gone out to do their various activities around the property that day. He said she was home when they got back, but he didn't believe she had been home too long. Then he says Blanca made dinner for them that night. Owen asks again how Alex's relationship with Maggie is, and Alex says, quote, very good, as good as it could possibly be. He said, of course, they have their issues. But their relationship was wonderful. And he did use the word wonderful. Mm -hmm. Again. He said they didn't really argue, but the thing that probably caused the biggest friction between them is that she liked to stay with her family when they would go out there for a little bit longer than he and the boys wanted to stay. And then at this point, he breaks down into a sob. And by the way, you guys have heard it already, but I mean, his voice is literally insane when he's sobbing. It cracks so much that honestly, it kind of sounds intentional to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. 100%. (laughs) I mean, it's just my opinion slipping out there. But so anyway, they ask more details about the day. And Alex says they rode the property in two trucks that day. It was a black one and a white one. And then they ask about the weapons they own. And Alex says... Paul had guns scattered all over the place. He says Paul had a gun called a 300 blackout. Side note, for those that have the same attention span as I do, six 300 blackout ammo casings were found near Maggie's body on the scene. So then he says Paul said the rifle had been stolen and that it had been gone for some time. So he said that Paul would use Buster's 300 blackout since his blackout had been stolen. Buster's gun was black and Paul's gun was tan. 
Alec had given both the boys a 300 blackout over a year ago. And he says they don't keep guns out at the kennels, but there were always guns out there. It was not unusual for Paul to leave guns out there. Alec says they never reported the gun as stolen because he was not totally convinced it was stolen as opposed to lost. He then says that he was certain they had replaced the gun for Paul after it disappeared, but he mentioned that Buster had told him that they didn't replace it. But then he was like, oh, I'm certain we replaced it. Yeah, I heard it was stolen when Paul and a friend of his went to a Halloween party and they had it in their truck. And when they got back in the truck, it was gone. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So they start talking about evidence gathered and that law enforcement has talked to over 100 people in the last three days. One of the interviewers starts to say that he knows Alec saw a traumatic thing. And then he knows it was hard, and Alec starts sobbing again. Through his sobs, he says something that was actually a mild controversy in the courtroom. He says a phrase, and some people hear one thing, and some people hear another. Have you heard it? Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm going to play it for you guys, and you form your own opinion as to what you hear. And I'm curious to hear what your opinion is as well. You know I'm going to tell you. I know. (laughs) I think I know what it is, too. All right. Maybe not. (laughs) It's just so bad. I did it so bad. Okay, I'm going to play that one more time. That was the extent of it. (laughs) It's just so bad. I did it so bad. Okay. Some people hear him say, it was so bad. I did him so bad. And others hear him say, It was so bad. They did him so bad. What is your opinion? I hear they did him so bad. That's exactly what I hear. And even if he did say I did him so bad, I don't think it really matters because he could have done him so bad for like leaving them or done him so bad for any number of reasons. Yeah. The first time I heard it, I didn't even question it. Like, I heard they, not I. Yeah. You need to come to the South if you want to really understand. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I think that might be part of it. Anyway, people apparently made a huge deal about it, so I thought I'd mention it and see what you (laughs) said. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I think you said they. Yeah. So on August 11th, Alec has his third sled interview. An immediately eyebrow-raising fact from this video is that attorney Corey Fleming is present with Alec and acting as his attorney. Fleming is under indictment for direct involvement with Murdoch's many, many financial crimes. (laughs) Wait, what? Wait, what does that mean? I guess he's been involved in some of those crimes. Or allegedly involved. (sighs) When this interview came out, I don't know if I did text you, but I wanted to so bad to talk about it because I felt like this lawyer was bullying the agent. Oh, yeah. For sure. Because he called him in to ask him a question. And he's like, so you're just going to ask him the question. There's no other reason why you brought him in, right? Yes. Actually, I think I addressed that. that? I think so. Yeah, it was like. But he was just so aggressive with him. Like, there's no other reason why he's here, right? Like, are you trying to accuse my client of something? Yeah, so Fleming interrupts the interview almost immediately and says that he thought Alec was coming to get updates on the investigation, not to be questioned himself. 
Fleming demands information first before Alec is questioned. And it's officer or agent Owen again. And he says some of his questions are directly related to information about the case. Mm -hmm. Fleming demands Owen say if he's asking Alec questions to further the investigation or if he's asking Alec questions because Alec is a suspect. Owen says he's trying to further the investigation and he's trying to eliminate Alec as a suspect because he's obligated to treat Alec as a suspect because he was the first one on scene. Mm -hmm. And then Fleming seems fine with this answer, but wants to be sure that Owen will not be questioning Alec based on news reporting surrounding the case. Fleming says, quote, I don't read it, but everybody in the United States of America has an opinion on this case. And because I know everybody and I know it's a bunch of bullshit, I can't imagine y'all are going to be asking about the nonsense on the internet. Owen says that's not what he's asking about. <laughs> and Fleming acquiesces to the questioning as long as Alec is okay with it. And Alec says, yes, let's proceed. Yeah, but the way he was like asking him these questions, the lawyer, he seemed like he was just like, Straight up intimidating the officer. Yeah, yeah. It was crazy. I don't know if that's how it normally is, but I thought he was just like puffing up his chest and like, no. Well, it's just a weird like juxtaposition to the lawyer that he had with him in the other. Mm-hmm. He was just sitting there quietly and coughing and, and had coughing. his shirt open. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it is. And this guy's very aggressive. Yeah. So they run through the day of June 7th for a third time. This time, I will spare you the same details, but I will go ahead and tell you about the new information that is revealed in this interview. So Paul had taken a six-second-long Snapchat video of Alec trying to upright a falling fruit tree when they were, quote, riding the property on June 7th. You can hear Paul laughing in the background, and Alec says, quote, It's better than it was, ain't it? <laughs> Agent Owen asks Alec about the clothes he was wearing in the Snapchat video, a blue shirt and khaki pants. Owen asks Alec when he changed clothes. Alec says he doesn't remember messing with a tree as shown in the video. He doesn't remember? He said he doesn't remember. And then Alec asks Owen what time the video was taken. Owen says there's no timestamp on it, but about dusk, so 7.30 to 8 p.m. And then Alec finally says he guesses he changed when he got back to the house after riding around with Paul. Yeah, in the video, he's basically like pulling the tree up and he lets go and it falls down. He's like, better than it was, right? Yeah. <laughs> See, it's things like that that I the sympathy starts to creep back in for me. Mm-hmm. We were talking about this earlier. Yeah. How I don't know what it is with me. I don't know if I have like a soft spot for like Southern dads or something. Yeah. Because I grew up in the South. But he's that type of person. Like he has that personality, at least on the surface, of a very like friendly, outgoing, nice Southern man. Mm -hmm. And I can see how he used that to his advantage to manipulate people. Yeah. So another thing, Alex said that he didn't often go visit his mom as late as he did that night, but she'd been particularly bad and particularly agitated the night of June 7th, 
since his father had just gone to the hospital. And he says that he was at his mom's for 45 minutes to an hour that night. Owen then asks Alec about Rogan Gibson's dog, Cash. Rogan Gibson is, he lives very close to their property and he's a good friend of the family and a good friend of Paul's. And there was something wrong with Cash's tail. And Cash had been staying at the Murdoch Kennels and Paul had contacted Rogan the night of the murders to let him know how his tail was doing. And I will go more into that as well in a little bit. Alec says that he found out from Rogan that there was something wrong with the dog's tail, and he doesn't recall any conversation with Paul about it at all. Remember that. Okay. Owen asks Alec about the 911 call, where he randomly says, here, and Owen asks if Alec was calling a dog. Alec says he doesn't remember that, but is sure that no dogs were out when he was calling 911, and he isn't sure why he said here. Owen brings up what guns were missing. Alec says three shotguns are for sure missing. A Benelli semi-auto, a Browning semi-auto, and a Remington pump action. Whatever that means. I don't know anything about <laughs> pump guns. Pump action. Pump action. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> exactly what I think of when I think pump action. Yeah. (laughs) Owen brings up the 300 blackouts. Paul's missing one and the supposed replacement one are both missing. If there is a replacement one. Because Alex says there was, Buster says there wasn't. I don't know. So you're telling me the clothes he was wearing that night in the Snapchat video are missing. I'm talking about the guns. And the guns are missing. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) All of the evidence is missing. And Maggie Swim was missing. Is that what you're telling me? (laughs) Are you telling me that? (laughs) There's just a lot of stuff missing. Okay. Alec believes the replacement has been gone since before Christmas 2020. Owen asks Alec about him making the comment, quote, I should have known during the 911 call. Alec, again, says he doesn't remember saying it, but guesses it was related to him being convinced this all had something to do with the boat wreck. Owen asks Alec about Paul's cell phone popping out when Alec tried to lift him or turn him over. Owen recalls how Alec said in an earlier interview he thought about doing something with it, meaning the phone, but thought better of it. Owen asks what Alec's intention was for the phone. Alec doesn't recall. Owen asks how long he, Maggie, and Paul ate dinner together that night. Alec says about 15 minutes. Then he asks Alec about his time frame getting home that day. Alec said he got home around 5.30 p.m., but Owen says that his key card shows a swipe around that time. Alec is confident he wasn't still at work at 6, but if he was, he wasn't there long afterward. Alec asks if Sled has been able to get his SUV data yet. Owen says no, it's a long process. And then Alec is adamant he was at home in time for he and Paul to ride around for a substantial amount of time, he believed possibly two hours, saying we rode all over. Again, his time frame has changed on the amount of time they spent on the property. 
mm-hmm. doing, which the list of things that they did, I don't even think they could get done in two hours. I have no idea. I've never done any of those things. Looking for hogs, looking at multiple fruit plot. Like this is a huge property. So yeah. there's drive time in between going to the kennels, going to the shop, going to the cabin, going to. I don't know how far away they are from each other, but I'm assuming you would during that entire drive time be looking for hogs during that entire driving time be looking at the fruit plots. I don't know. But at least, I mean, they got out several times to do crap like straighten a yeah. fruit tree and shoot I don't know. Targets it, and... Yeah, shoot targets. I don't know. It just seems like he's over telling like how much stuff they did yeah. for some reason. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong and maybe it is possible to do all that shit. In but two all hours. we do know is that he did mess with a fruit tree. Yes. <laughs> and he was wearing a blue shirt and khaki pants, which yes. was not what he was wearing. When he called police. No, he was wearing a white t-shirt and was it khaki shorts? Yeah. Pristine white shirt. Mm -hmm. Owen says he believes Paul was shot first because of where he was located. Alec says he thought Maggie was shot first because she was shot in the back of the head. And then Owen says he thinks Paul was shot first because there's no way if Paul saw his mother getting shot, he would have run toward the feed room. Yeah. But at the same time, I can see wanting to get in a room, like, away from an active shooter. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if I totally agree with that, but. Yeah, I've heard experts say it was Paul who was shot first. Yeah. So Owen makes a comment that they have already established that family guns were used. Alec asks Owen if Maggie or Paul were alive very long after the shooting. He asks if they suffered. Owen says it was very quick, a matter of seconds. Such a disgusting thing to ask. Yeah, it was. Knowing. He's just trying to sound caring. Sound like a victim. Yeah. (laughs) All right, y'all. So Alec did something really crazy. So on September 4th, 2021, Alec was on his way to Charleston, South Carolina, according to him, when he had car trouble and stopped on Salkahatchee Road in Yamasee, South Carolina. A truck passed him, turned around, and came back, and someone in the truck shot him in the head. Okay. (laughs) It turns out that Alec had colluded with this guy, according to Alec's lawyers, Dick Harpootlian and Jim Griffin, they said that he had been struggling with a long-time addiction to opioids and wanted to end his life, so he asked someone to shoot him. We would later find out this was not the reason. And it was someone he knew. Yep. On September 14th, 2021, SLED announced the arrest of Curtis Edward Smith, who goes by Eddie. Um, cousin Eddie. Alec calls him Cousin Eddie. He was accused of conspiring with Alec to kill Alec so that Buster could receive a $10 million insurance payout. Eddie is actually, or cousin Eddie, is actually Alec's distant relative, a former legal client, and then also an alleged source for Alec's oxycodone pills. And I remember this happened when we were discussing starting the podcast 
we went oh, to that shit. Mexican restaurant and yeah. like all of the stuff had gone down and you were like, have you heard about that Murdoch guy mm-hmm. who did this? And I was like, I have, but it's just so, there's so much happening. I can't even follow it. Yeah. So here's Cousin Eddie's side of the story. He said, quote, I get a call from Alec that Saturday afternoon to come to where he was, and I thought it was maybe to fix something. I had no idea what he wanted. I just went over there. When Eddie arrived to where Alec was parked on old Salkahatchee Road, he claimed Alec got out of his car and began waving a gun around. Eddie said, quote, I run over and we wrestled a minute together me trying to get the gun away from him, and then the gun kind of went off above his head, and I got scared to death, and I ran to my truck and took off. <laughs> Didn't Alex slash his own tire? Did you mention that he had a flat tire? <laughs> no. <laughs> he apparently had slashed his own tire. Oh, my God. To claim that he had a flat tire when he got out of the car... To change it, he did slash his own tire. Yeah. So not only does Eddie maintain that he has never hurt anyone, but he vehemently denies being Alec's drug dealer. Despite the accusations Alec lodged against him, Eddie says he doesn't blame him. He said, quote, I understand he's in fight or flight mode and he wanted me to be the heavyweight in the water so he could fly. But Eddie also said that... Alec can't pull a fast one on him. He said, quote, I wouldn't advise him to try to set me up. I'd strongly advise him against that. So I don't know exactly what that means, but I guess don't mess with Cousin Eddie. Mm -hmm. I saw in an interview, they were talking about how Alec had asked Cousin Eddie to shoot him, to put him out of his misery. And they were like, do you have any response to that? And the lawyer like gestured over to Eddie and he said, if I were to shoot that man, he would have been dead. (laughs) Oh my God. That's crazy. And cousin Eddie is currently being held by Lexington County Sheriff's department quote for safekeeping. (laughs) Safe. I don't know what that means. That's what it said. Yeah. Like a Werther's original in your coat pocket. (laughs) Just for safekeeping. Just keeping it safe right here. We got to keep him from the public and the public from him. (laughs) (laughs) So in September, the state Supreme Court issued an official order to disbar Alec from the practice of law in South Carolina in the wake of numerous criminal charges stemming back more than a decade and spanning the width of the South Carolina low country. And here's just an excerpt from the order itself. It says, we suspended respondent Richard Alexander Murdoch from the practice of law on September 8th, 2021. In the intervening months, respondent has been indicted on more than 80 criminal charges arising from various ongoing investigations. Additionally, respondent has admitted in various court proceedings and filings that he engaged in financial misconduct involving theft of money from his former law firm, that he solicited his own murder to defraud his life insurance carrier, 
and that he is liable for the theft of $4,305,000 in settlement funds. Based on these admissions, we issued an order directing respondent to personally appear before this court on June 22, 2022, to present legal argument on the question of whether he should be disbarred from the practice of law. We subsequently canceled that hearing after the respondent filed an affidavit waiving all rights to a hearing and stating he did not contest the court's authority and decision to disbar him from the practice of law. In doing so, we noted a formal decision as to disbarment would follow. Respondent concedes that disbarment is warranted in light of his admitted professional misconduct. However, our decision today turns not on respondent's concession, but rather derives from our constitutional authority and duty to protect the public from attorneys who are not fit to practice law. Indeed, we take the step today, based on our ability to conclude from the public record that respondents' untruthfulness and misconduct resulted in significant harm to clients and demands his removal from the practice of law. Based on his admitted reprehensible misconduct, we hereby disbar respondent Richard Alexander Murdoch from the practice of law in South Carolina. Good. Hang on. I think I missed a slide cue. Oh. Yes, I did. Okay. Here you go. (laughs) Good old red face. (laughs) He's scary. That's a scary picture. And all of their mug shots are like in their... They're not in, like, jail clothes. Yeah, why are they... That is so weird. Maybe that's a thing in South Carolina? I don't know. Well, I didn't even tell you this. I follow a crime Facebook page, and they post mugshots and stuff, and I saw someone I went to high school with. Oh, my God. I've been waiting for that to happen to me. Um, I I want that to happen so bad. They're normally wearing their normal clothes, but the picture's so scary, too. Oh, my God. That well, he's scary. actually wearing an orange jumpsuit, and yeah. he was arrested for aggravated assault <gasps> and aggravated stalking. Oh, God. And Dude, I, I have been waiting for... I want so badly for someone from my pretentious-ass, rich-ass kid... Christian school to get arrested for something horrible. <laughs> You're probably protected from like our version of the Murdochs. Yeah, that's a horrible thing for me to have said, but <laughs> I guess the only thing from that police interview that I would have said is that when the police officer asked mm. if he killed Maggie and Paul, he went from like pale ginger face. To straight up tomato head. Yes. Like his face color, like, I don't know, like, maybe that happens if you're innocent. I mean, my face turns red when I'm nervous, but like, it was a. But it was like a change from like before they asked the question, then after they asked yeah, the question. Yeah, it was like pale, then red. Yeah. Oh my God. Anyway. <laughs> He never did a lie detector test, did he? I don't think so. I've never heard of one. Yeah, me neither. Probably denied it because he's a lawyer. Oh, I bet he said no. Yeah, I bet he said no. So in October 2021, it was revealed that SLED had Alec down as a person of interest in the homicides since the start of the investigation. 
And in July 2022, Alec Murdoch was arrested after the Colleton County Grand Jury issued an indictment charging him with two counts of murder and two counts of possession of a weapon during the commission of a violent crime in the deaths of his wife, Maggie, and of his son, Paul. So when did he get arrested? I always wondered this. July 2022. Oh. Not even a year ago. Oh, my God. I thought it was way longer than that. They went to trial pretty quickly. I mean, That's crazy. Yeah. So he was out. Well, a year. Well, was he in jail before that at all? He must have been because there's some jail tapes, which I'm about to talk about, that were released. And they're from a six-month-long period yeah. that were from October 2021 yeah. to March 2022. So, yes, I think he was already in jail. I wonder when that happened. Like, why that happened? For the financial crimes, yes. I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The indictment stated that Alec shot his wife with a rifle and his son with a shotgun. It was revealed at that time that there was also cell phone footage that placed Murdoch at the scene when his wife and son were shot, which we'll talk about. But (laughs) what? The footage? What do you mean? The footage that you're talking about? Did you say something about the cell phone footage? Yeah, the um, video that Paul took. Yeah, I don't feel like that came out until like trial had. I'm wondering if they just said they had it and didn't actually release the video. Yeah, they didn't release it until. Yeah, they must have had it though. Yeah, I'm sure they had it by then. So yeah, I'm not sure if that means they had the video and they just said that there was cell phone footage that placed him there and had. I mean, they didn't release the video until. Recently. Yeah, very recently during the trial, right? So yeah. I'm wondering if maybe it came up in the probable cause affidavit for mm-hmm. his arrest or and something. And it wasn't shared. Yeah, or, or his something. indictment. Because they needed that to charge him. Okay, so in the summer of 2022, 121 jail recordings of Alex's phone calls were released. The recordings are from a six-month-long period, like I said, from October 2021 to March 2022. In several of them, there are some what you would call suspicious interactions between Alec and the other people on the line. I'm only going to play two of these. I didn't get a chance to go through all of them, but these two are with his son, Buster. So I will play the first one. These are all fairly quick, so I know I've shared a lot of audio tonight and last week. (laughs) Hey, hey! Sorry to bug you again, real quick. Um, hey, where's no Libby? Um, she's back at the house, which I just left. Okay, how about call her and tell her I'm trying to get her. Okay, what do you need from her? I need her to put some money on a canteen. All right. Actually, you know what? I'll call her. Again, I called her twice. No. What? I'll, I'll, I can shoot her a bug, but just, I just got to do it while I'm right here at the, at the Exxon, because if I go any further, I'm not going to have any service. Well, see, there's a guy who doesn't get canteen, and canteen is the commerce. I know what it is. You know, I mean, it's, it's the commerce, it's the trade. And it really helped me last week when she put it on that. Lucas's account, and I want her to do that one more time. Okay, it's just, 
outside looking in looks a little weird. What do you mean? It just looks a little weird. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I, I get what you're saying, but I mean, I made a deal with somebody. I give them $15. See, I can only do $60 on my account. I understand. I'm just saying, and I'm not saying you are, man. I just, just really hope you're not in there doing anything you shouldn't be doing. Oh, no, I'm not doing anything. I promise you, that's not the case. So when was that recorded? So this call was on January 4th, 2022. What are your thoughts? I have thoughts. I also have thoughts. So, well, basically what Alec is doing is asking Buster to ask his aunt Liz who's John Marvin's wife, to put money on another inmate's account, which is against the rules, by the way. Mm-hmm. He says it's the commerce mm-hmm. in jail. Yeah. Which leads me to think he's going to put money on this guy's account and he's going to get something in return. Mm-hmm. What it is, I don't know. I mean, I thought about this for a second because immediately your thought goes, I mean, he was addicted to pills. So is he eating drugs? Is he... Some other contraband, whatever. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I don't know. There are, like, prison gangs, and maybe he's paying this guy to protect him. Because I thought about this because you sent me that TikTok today mm-hmm. where there was an inmate talking about how when Alec Murdoch gets to jail, they're going to beat his ass. The prison. Yeah. That's funny you say they're going to beat his ass because I took it as they were, like, excited for him to come. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, I thought it was a threat. No, I took it like they were looking forward to the Alec Murdoch coming and helping them. That's so interesting. I yeah. didn't even think about it that way. Yeah, because he's a lawyer and they can like he's rich apparently and like maybe... I took it a totally different way. Hmm. I wonder which is the real <laughs> That's so crazy. Yeah. That's so weird that you Oh my god. But yeah, with the commerce, the canteen, I listened to a call with Liz, John Marvin's wife. He oh. he did one with her too. Okay. And then he did another one with John Marvin. He was desperate for this money to be put on it. Oh, so was, these were like follow-up calls yes. to this one? Okay, so okay. First he asked Buster. Then he called Liz. He was like, hey, uh, he explains the whole thing like, you only can have $60 on your commissary. And this guy doesn't get any money on his. So can we put $60 on his and he'll pay him $15? Like he gets $15 and then Alec gets whatever's left for himself. To okay. Use commissary. And he's like telling them it's because he's working out so much and he's sore and he needs ibuprofen and ibuprofen's like $15 a pop. Oh my or God. Whatever. And. But the, like, urgency that he has for this money, he calls, like, over and over. And he's That's like, suspicious. He's like, when when can you put it on? And Liz was like, in 30 minutes. And then she forgets. So he calls John Marvin later that night, and he's like, I called Liz, and I asked her to do this, but she didn't do it. Like, when can you guys do this? And he's like, okay. Like, she's putting the kids down for bed in, like, a few minutes. And he's like, well, it closes in 15 minutes. So, oh like, my God. that leads me to believe that he's going to somehow buy drugs yeah. by putting this money on this guy's commissary. Right. Somehow. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Buster says in the call, 
outside looking in, it looks a little weird. And I agree. <laughs> yeah. I hope you're not going to be doing something bad with this. Like, yes. I hope you're not doing your, something you're not supposed to be doing. Yeah. He's like, oh, no, 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 no. Of course not. Of course not. I understand what you're saying, son, but. Uh... <laughs> Just saying all the right things. So smooth. Yeah. So the next call that I have has music behind it. Sorry. Unfortunately, I could not fucking find a version that didn't have music. So. <laughs> some music? I think the recording is pulled from a documentary or recording. something. Can you hear me? Hello. Yeah. What you doing? Nothing. At uh, Greenfield. Y'all hunting? Uh, we're going to this afternoon. Let me tell you what you ought to do, Buster. I think the damn um, theaters were full over there at Moselle. If you felt like going back there, I bet with nothing going on, I bet there's deer all over them things. No, I mean, back. What's that going to do for me? Kill a deer? I'm not going hunting out there. I don't blame you. I'm just letting you know. Do you care if, um, if I let Jim do it? Jim, Jim who? Jim Griffin. Oh, I let him hunt deer out there? What are you talking about? I didn't know if you wanted to hunt doves out there. If you do, then I want you to do it. If not, then I'm going to let him do it. That is troubling to me. I can't quite figure this one out. It's obvious that he's not talking about deer hunting or dove hunting. Right. There's something that he wants Buster to do. Right. And he's he says, if you don't want to do it, I'll have Jim do it. Jim Griffin, that's his defense attorney. Yeah, I know. And friend. <laughs> I know. But do it. Like, if you're talking about deer hunting or dove hunting, you'd be like, well, I was going to invite Jim to go out there and yeah, deer hunt. But, like, why is it Buster or Jim? Like, there's... Right. Why can't they both go out? Or why can't they go at different times? It's... Exactly. It's like... It's like it, it. So, what is so important about hunting deer or doves at the Moselle property that if Buster doesn't do it, someone has to do it? Hide evidence, right? And I was thinking either guns or clothes. Yeah, because those are the two things that have never been found. And why did he switch from deer to doves in the middle of it? Because he was lying. Because he <laughs> forgot what he was talking about. Yeah, and because he wasn't actually talking about deer. <laughs> I don't know if like, he was, who like, cares signifying who what? to where, what spot or what thing. Yeah, because they have, like, deer areas, and then obviously they have dove fields yeah. and duck ponds and, yeah. Duck uh-huh. ponds and, <laughs> and deer fields and dove fields. And... Are you making fun of me? No, that's how <laughs> oh. they are. Like, that's how they talk. Yeah. Yeah, he's like, he prefers Buster to do it almost. Mm -hmm. But if he's not going to do it, then Jim's got to do it. It's weird. So yeah, anyway, we're going to get into Alex's trial. But first, we are going to take a little break. A little break. Or a long break. (laughs) It might might be a long break, but you'll never know it's a long break. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, see ya. Bye. 
Hey, we're back. Hey, we're back. It's been a week. (laughs) (laughs) It's officially been one week since we last talked to you. (laughs) It was quite a break. It was quite a break, but um, we needed it. It was getting very late. And I still have a shitload more to talk about. I know. We'll probably have to build in another break. I I have another break built in. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah so last week, last week, <laughs> five <laughs> seconds ago, you heard us talk about the jail tapes. <laughs> yes. So now the time has come to cover the trial. <laughs> so... The trial of Alec Murdoch for the murders of Paul and Maggie began on January 25th, 2023. Before jury selection could begin, Alec's defense team asked Judge Newman to block testimony of potential blood evidence. Alec was wearing a white t-shirt when he arrived at the kennels, and that t-shirt had become a point of contention between the state and Alec's defense team after the defense said forensic tests failed to show stains on the shirt were from human blood. The argument then shifted toward a motion filed by the state to admit financial evidence as a basis for a motive in the killings. Judge Newman argued that the motion they were filing was, okay, this is a legal term and I didn't know what this meant. It's limine, L-I-M-I-N-E. It means a motion at the start, and he said it's typically used to exclude evidence from a trial rather than to add it. And Judge Newman said that he was not prepared to grant a motion. Oh, is it limony? Like, is it limony? I think so. <laughs> I've heard that word before. Okay, it might be limony. So the state agreed to introduce the evidence as needed. He did end up admitting it into evidence. I think it was maybe a couple days later, a day or two later. So, yeah, the prosecutors were of the opinion that the murders were a cover-up for Alec's financial crimes. You know, the state turned over millions of pages of documents during discovery about these financial crimes. And, of course, the defense believes that this motive is completely fabricated. The jury selection lasted three days. A pool of 700 was narrowed down to, obviously, 12 jurors, and then they had six alternates. I was wondering, I tried to look this up. Do they always start with a pool of 700 people, or is I it... I don't know. It was just something I was curious about. Well, I think about jury duty. I've been in jury duty before, and the room is not 700 people. I think that, yeah, they split them into groups, for oh. sure. Well, something like this, I assume the jury pool would be larger. That's true. To make sure they're not, like... I'm sure so many people know about this. I was about to say, I bet they were just crossing people yeah. off, the, because, dear God... And they ended up selecting some jurors that did know, you know, like who they were at least, mm-hmm. because it's just such a small area and they're so famous in the area. Yeah. The witness list included more than 200 names, but, okay, my count, now, my count was based off of somebody else's list because <laughs> I did not go through the videos and count everybody. I got 68. But I did find a source that said 75, so whatever. 68 to 75 witnesses would end up being called to testify. Opening statement started on January 25th, 2023. Lead prosecutor Creighton Waters spoke first, and when he described Maggie Murdoch being shot, Alec looked down and shook his head. Waters attempted to poke holes in Alec's alibi and says he has the evidence to prove Alec is the killer. Waters said, quote, 
you're going to hear three recorded statements on video that he gave with law enforcement, and you're going to hear how things progress about what he says and what he says he did that night. Watch those closely. Watch his expressions. Listen to what he's saying and listen to what he's not saying. Waters told the jury they will hear that about a week after the killings, Alec showed up early in the morning at his parents' home, which was something that was uncharacteristic of him. He tells the jury that Alec walks into his parents' house carrying a blue tarp and takes it upstairs. He says that once law enforcement found out about the tarp, they went to the house and found a very large blue raincoat that could look like a tarp. And I'll talk about the raincoat tarp later. And then he also said there was evidence of gunshot residue on the inside. And then he mentions that there is also cell phone evidence that incriminates Alec. The defense's opening statements were given by defense attorney Dick Harpootlian. He puts the poot in Harpootlian. <laughs> and he puts the dick in dick. Yeah, or the ick in dick. The ick in dick. <laughs> ick poot. Ick poot. <laughs> he really is kind of a turd. He looks like he just like accidentally poots all the time. Mm-hmm. Yes, he does. He is that age. <laughs> <laughs> So his angle was that Alec and Maggie had an ideal loving relationship and that Paul was, quote, the apple of his eye. And then he says that the cell phone records are incomplete. And then remember Maggie's phone? He says Maggie's phone was being thrown on the side of the road a half mile away from where Alec's phone showed he was at the time. One thing both sides could agree on was the brutality of the murders. Harpootlian argued that the shooter would be covered head to foot in blood, and he says that there was no blood on Alec that night. Once opening arguments were over, it was time to call the witnesses. So I'm not going to go through every single witness because we would be here for another four Month. or five episodes, <laughs> if not more. But I'm just going to give you the highlights. And Ashley, if there's anything you remember from the trial because you watched it as well, please let me know. Because I didn't watch the whole entire every minute of everything in the mm -hmm. trial. So just let me know and chime in whenever you Okay. We might have, have seen something. different parts. Yeah. So, and I kind of laid this out week by week. So I'm going to do this in chronological order. Okay. So Deputy Jason Chapman, who oversees special operations for the Colleton County Sheriff's Office, took the stand and testified that Alec had a tormented expression while at the scene of the shootings. He said that Alec was sweating, but he didn't cry. He said he didn't have an issue with the fact that Alec didn't cry, but he did notice that Alec would have a, quote, demeanor change in response to some questions. He testified that one of those demeanor changes happened when investigators were looking at tire impressions in the grass. Chapman said that there were many sets of tire impressions at the scene, including one that came close to Maggie's body. And he said they were trying to match the tire marks to a vehicle on the property, but they didn't match any vehicles. So Chapman said that one thing that started to bother him was that they didn't have a vehicle, and it's a pretty substantial distance from the residence to the kennels. He estimated that the kennels were roughly a thousand yards from the house. So he asked Alec how Paul and Maggie would have gotten to the kennels. Alec said he didn't know for sure but they, quote, should have driven Paul's white F-250. Paul's truck was not at the property that night anyway. Oh. 
So why would he say that? He's huh. an idiot. Okay. Yeah. Chapman said law enforcement issued a BOLO or a be on the lookout advisory to other agencies in the area saying the truck was possibly taken from the crime scene. The next day they actually found it and it was on the side of Highway 63 as, as if anyone knows where that is. But the explanation for this was Paul apparently had traded vehicles with his uncle John Marvin mm-hmm. and John Marvin told investigators that Paul's truck broke down on him while he was rushing to Moselle when he heard about the shooting. What? So I guess John Marvin drove to Moselle after, I don't know if Alec told him or whatever, about the shooting and it broke down on him on the way. Okay, and that was Paul's car? That was Paul's truck. Okay. Yeah. Alec's lawyers questioned police as to why they did not take pictures of tire tracks located at the scene. You think that would be something they would do? And Dick Harpootlian interrogated Culleton County Sergeant Daniel Green about whether they could have contaminated the crime scene with their own tire tracks when they responded to the scene. Green said it is possible that officers could have compromised the tire tracks with their own, but that the officers know how not to contaminate a crime scene. <laughs> oh, you don't say. <laughs> Harpootlian then asked him whether any steps were taken to preserve the tire tracks. And Green says nothing was done. And he did not tell anyone to take pictures of them as that is not his job. <laughs> I feel you, Daniel. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of shit I do that's not my job. Yeah. Green also testified that he questioned Alec about the tire tracks. I'm not sure if it was that night or when, but he said that Alec... Claim they weren't his. So the next witness I'm going to bring up is sled agent Melinda Worley. So she's actually the last witness of week one. I just want to know, sled stands for South Carolina Law Enforcement Division. That's correct. Yes. And I think I said that in the first episode, but oh. I may not have <laughs> this is said rough. it again. <laughs> <laughs> this has been very rough. Trying to figure out what we've talked about. I know. There's so much. There's so much. So, yeah, she was the last witness on Friday of week one of the trial. And the biggest evidence introduced during her testimony was nearly a dozen swabs that were taken from Alex Black Suburban. The swabs were taken in various places on the driver's side of the vehicle, including the steering wheel, front of the seat, and the door handle. And I don't know why I didn't write this here, but I think it's at least one tested presumptive for blood Mm -hmm. and i think it was the steering wheel and wasn't it maggie's blood so that blood was later identified as being maggie's trial week two this is the bombshell that came out some of the most shocking evidence came during week two of the trial with the testimony of rogan gibson paul's super close friend and neighbor I know I briefly mentioned him before, but I didn't explain the whole situation, so we'll go through it. Rogan also, he was like family to the Murdochs. Like he, he was good friends with all of them, I think. But he was Paul's friend, but he knew the family very well. Mm-hmm. So Rogan had left his black lab named Cash at the Murdochs' dog kennels on the Moselle property. On June 7th, 2021, which is the day of the shootings, Paul placed a four-minute call to Rogan at 8.40 
and they discussed a possible issue with Cash's tail. Paul told him he'd take a video of Cash's tail and send it to him as soon as he hung up, but Rogan never got a video from Paul. He texted Paul twice and tried to call him four more times. He also texted Maggie, didn't get a response. Investigators interviewed Rogan the next day, and he told them, I'm not sure when they came out, maybe this came out at this point, I I didn't hear about it before, but he told them that he heard Maggie's voice in the background on that call with Paul, and he was 99% sure he also heard Alec. Hmm. So months after the murders, investigators recovered a 50-second unsent video of cash from Paul's phone, which was recorded at 8.44 and 49 seconds p.m. In November 2022, they asked Rogan to watch the video and identify the voices. And I'm going to play the audio from that video. Get it. Get that. So after hearing a bunch of video with Alex's voice in it, I'm pretty sure all of us can identify Alex's voice in that video. Baba, <laughs> Baba, <laughs> Baba, Come Baba. The video is largely Paul trying to capture on video what's going on with Cash's tail. He's trying to, you know, get Cash to stay still for him. The first voice you hear is Paul, and it's really hard to hear, but at the beginning. Another male voice says, how bad is it, Paul? And Paul replies, it ain't that bad. And then you hear the woman yell, hey, he's got a bird in his mouth. And then the other male voice says, Bubba. (laughs) (laughs) And Bubba is one of the Murdoch's dogs. I think. Like a yellow lab. Yes. And I think that was like Maggie's dog, Mm -hmm. like her baby. And then she says it's a guinea. And which is a type of bird that they have. And then Paul says, it's a chicken. And then you hear the other male voice saying, come here, Bubba. Come here, Bubba. (laughs) (laughs) So prosecutor Waters asked Rogan if he heard the voices of his, quote, second family. Rogan said, Paul, Miss Maggie, and Mr. Alec. Waters asked how sure he was. Rogan said he was positive. Waters asked Rogan to identify Alec, and Rogan pointed to Alec and said, sitting right there in the gray jacket. Yeah, I mean, there's no disputing it. It's his voice. Mm -hmm. It is his voice. And I didn't mention this earlier when we were talking about the third sled interview, but Agent Owen actually asks Alec another time if he had been at the kennels after dinner. And then Owen told Alec 
that Rogan had identified his voice in the background at the Kendall's at around 9 p.m. And Alex said that he had talked to Rogan and Rogan told him he thought he heard him in the background. But in the interview, Alec is adamant that he wasn't there. He sticks to it. Alec also says he doesn't know who else could have been down there with a voice like his. No one else could have been down there. Mm. No one else knows who else it could have been because it was you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this new finding could only mean one thing. Alec had lied to the police about where he had been that night. He'd also lied in his third interview when he said he didn't know anything about Rogan's dog Cash having anything wrong with his tail, which I had mentioned before. They had asked him if he knew anything was wrong with his tail, because in this video, he is asking Paul, how bad is it? So he knew that was just another lie. It's not a crazy lie, but it's just another lie. The biggest lie. Well, I mean, just the just the part about him not knowing anything about Cash's tail. Oh. He had told Sled in multiple previous interviews that he had been at home during the time this video was taken, asleep on the couch or watching TV, looking at his phone. And now he's placed at the scene of the crime just minutes before Paul and Maggie are killed. I remember when I saw this video for the first time, I think it was before the trial started. Mm -hmm. I think it came out before the trial started, but... Maybe it was, I don't know. I feel like it was during, but I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. But when I saw it for the first time, I was shook. Yeah. Like, absolutely. I could not believe it. <laughs> I could not believe it. I showed everyone that video. Even if they, <laughs> even if they didn't know, like, most people were like, what? <laughs> My husband was like, um, Okay. You showed me this a million times already now. I remember when you sent it to me, I hadn't done like all of the research I'd, you know, obviously have done now. So I was like, wait, what? And then I realized I was like, oh my God. Well, by the time I saw that video, I had already watched the HBO documentary. So I was all like, I had my bearings on everything. Yeah. That, that docu-series really helped me like make sense of everything because it's a lot of information. So I knew that he said he was never there. And hearing him there just minutes before they were killed was just yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, minutes. Because he didn't respond to Rogan's texts. And he, uh, like, Paul always was on his phone. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Paul's always on his phone. I do remember him saying that. Yeah, and it just, I mean, he never ever says that he heard any gunfire or anything. Like, he would have had to have been out of the area by the time that happened. And there's just no way. Mm -hmm. And then if he's leaving to go somewhere, like, would he pass this person? Like, on the way out? Or, or see a car yeah. that he didn't recognize or something. Yeah. Yeah. So, week three, on February 6th, Shelly Smith, the caregiver to Miss Libby Murdoch, who was Alec's mom, was called to the stand. Shelly said Alec came to the house on the night of the murders. She said he was wearing a t-shirt, shorts, and boat shoes, and that she couldn't see any blood on him or left on the bed when he was next to his mother. While Shelly says Alec was only there for 15 to 20 minutes that night, she says he told her to tell people something different. So they set it up like, I mean, they are obviously already knew about her saying this at some point. 
So we're like, did he tell you to tell other people a different length of time? And Shelly said, quote, he said, if someone asks you, I was here 30 to 40 minutes. So that's weird. Yeah. And that's not the only time you'll hear a witness say that he came back and kind of tried to convince them to say something mm-hmm. else. On Tuesday afternoon, SLED investigator Megan Fletcher said a blue raincoat was found at the Murdoch parents' house and was tested on October 5th, 2021. It tested positive for more than 30 particles of gunshot residue on the inside. So they found it. I think it was inside out when they found it. And the gunshot residue was on the inside, which was actually on the outside. Okay. Right. That makes sense. Fletcher called the number of particles a, quote, significant amount, and she said it was consistent with someone wearing, I just explained this and I got ahead of myself, it was consistent with somebody wearing the jacket inside out. Fletcher also testified that gunshot residue particles were found on the t-shirt and shorts collected from Alec on the night of the murders, as well as a single particle on Alec's hands. Fletcher said that the seatbelt from Alex's Chevy Suburban also had gunshot residue on the buckle and noted it was probably from a transfer. Do you remember when the agent had to open the package that the rain jacket was in? Did you see that part? They, I must not have seen that exact part. I think the defense, I think it was, I think it was Jim was like, do you recall what size that rain jacket is? She's like, um... I don't recall. And, and she was like, is it a large? And she was just like, I don't recall. It looked large, but yeah. I don't know the size. And he's like, well, how about we open it and take a look? And it took <laughs> like 10 minutes <laughs> to open this jacket up because it was wrapped in several layers of paper. Oh and like, the crowd was even laughing. Because <laughs> it's like it was a present that you yes. get at Christmas and somebody wraps it a hundred times. Yes. And then by the time she got it out, she's like looking for the tag. There's no tag. There's no label. So they don't even know what size it is anyway. But it looked huge. Yeah, it did look really big. So on Wednesday, February 8th, someone decided to add some thrill to the courtroom. A bomb threat came in just before 1230 p.m. Brian Hudak, SLED computer crime special agent, had only just sat down on the stand and begun introducing himself when Judge Newman interjected and said, we're calling a recess. Seconds later, he said, oh, guess what? The entire building needs to be evacuated. (laughs) (laughs) Alec was whisked off to an unknown location in a car, and the rest of everyone else, court staff, journalists, and then, you know, members of the public were rushed out of the building. Dozens of emergency vehicles arrived at the courthouse, and a bomb squad was called in. And by 2.30 p.m., the threat was marked all clear, and then they began allowing people back into the courthouse. Did you hear who did it? Oh, no, I didn't. Oh. (laughs) I was just going to say, apparently it was so hot in South Carolina that day that a woman who was evacuated, like, overheated and passed out. (laughs) Oh, my God. In February. Wow. So who did it? It was some random prison inmate. Somebody called from the prison, uh, the prison that he is in, and called in a bomb threat. (laughs) I wonder if they thought they were doing him a A solid. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. I got your back, homie. Yeah, man. I don't know. It was so random. 
So on Friday, the Murdoch's housekeeper, Blanca, testified. She was asked about a conversation she had with Alec about a shirt. Blanca said Alec had asked her to meet with him at the home he was staying in after the murders. So he didn't stay in the main house at Moselle after the murders. She called it, what does she call it? The little house is what she called it. And it's like a two-bedroom house that they have on the property. Was it the cabin that Paul used to stay in? I, it wasn't clear if that was the same thing or not. Okay, I'm yeah. not sure. It might be. But she called it the little house. I don't know. She said that Alec began pacing around the room and kept saying to her that he had a bad feeling. And then he brought up the Snapchat video that Paul had taken of him trying to upright the tree. If you remember, he was mm -hmm. wearing different clothes in that video than he was wearing the night he called 911. Mm -hmm. He asked her, okay, so do you know if it's her that says Vinnie Vines or was she saying he says Vinnie Vines? I don't know. He asked her if she knew the, quote, Vinnie Vines shirt he was wearing that day. Do you remember this? I remember this, but... So I don't know... <laughs> I don't know whether it's Blanca thinking it's called Vinnie Vines, or if she's saying Alec thinks it's called Vinnie Vines. <laughs> I would bet you anything Alec calls it that. Yeah. Because he likes to give a nickname for everything, apparently. Yeah, yeah. And so people might actually call it that. Oh, maybe. Maybe that's a thing that I didn't know about. Like, you know, people that love vineyard vines. I would like to know how many of our listeners wear vineyard vines. We'll put a poll on this episode. <laughs> <laughs> so Blanca remembers that he wasn't wearing a vineyard vines shirt. She remembers him wearing a polo shirt. She said she knew what shirt he was wearing that day because she had fixed the collar and it was a different material than his vineyard vine shirt. Blanca then testified that she felt like Alec was trying to tell her that if someone asked her what shirt he was wearing that day, she was supposed to say the Vineyard Vine shirt. Or at least, at the very least, he was trying to convince her that that is what he was wearing. Mm -hmm. So th that's another instance of him trying to coerce the truth. Yep. In week four of the trial, there was testimony on blood evidence. So, yeah, okay, I go into the steering wheel here. So, well, for one sentence, all swabs on Alec's SUV, the Suburban, tested negative for blood except the swab taken from the steering wheel, and that came back with Maggie's blood. And then the raincoat tested negative for blood before being processed for DNA. They tried to make a DNA profile from the coat, but they were unable to. And then testing on the shirt Alec was wearing the night of the murders, the white shirt came back negative for human blood. Another witness called was Maggie's sister, Marion Proctor. And I think they look really alike. Yeah, she's gorgeous. They look so alike. Yeah, they are. They're very pretty people. Um, <laughs> did you send me that thing? That comedian on TikTok going like, these are the most ugly motherfuckers I've ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> It was a comedian. She was talking about the ginger people of the family, and she was basically saying they're <laughs> ugly. Like, gingers are fine, but they're ugly gingers. <laughs> anyway, that's someone else's opinion, and that's all I'll leave it at. <laughs> <laughs> Allegations of an affair were mentioned 
by lead prosecutor Creighton Waters during her testimony. According to Marion, Maggie confided to her on multiple occasions about an alleged affair involving Alec and an unidentified woman that took place, quote, several years ago. When Maggie and Alec reconciled after this alleged affair, Marion testified outside the presence of the jury that Maggie made Alec leave the house at the time and that she brought it up in conversation as recently as 2020. Prosecutors wanted to include this since it countered the defense's loving family narrative, Mm -hmm. but Judge Newman did not allow it. Okay. Still, she provided damning testimony about Alec's demeanor after Paul and Maggie were murdered. During cross-exam from Griffin, Marion said, quote, I thought his priority should have been on finding out who killed Maggie and Paul. He never talked about that, about finding out who had done it. It was just odd. We thought this horrible person was out there. We were afraid. We didn't know what was going on. Alec didn't seem to be afraid. Agent Peter Rudofsky had data detailing the movements of Alec, Maggie, and Paul on June 7th, 2021. Prosecutors gained data from Alec's Chevy Suburban OnStar system, and investigators were able to establish that only 20 seconds had elapsed between Alec's arrival at the kennels and his 911 call. That would not be enough time, theoretically, to check the bodies, turn Paul over, Blah, 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 as Alec claimed in the 911 call. Mm -hmm. There just wasn't enough time. Yeah. The prosecution rested their case after Agent Rudofsky's testimony. (laughs) His hair is so alarming. It's (laughs) so bright. It's so bright. It's like the reddest hair I've ever seen in my entire life. I've got a slide up of Buster because he's our next witness. And the defense's first witness. And he kicked off week five of the trial. He didn't have anything crazy to say. Buster says that Alec called him at 9.10 p.m. on June 7th and told him that he was going to Almeida to check on his mom. And Buster said the phone call seemed like a normal phone call. He seemed Alec seemed fine and normal. And he said it was much different compared to the phone call he received later that night from his dad. Buster said, quote, he asked me if I was sitting down. I was like, yeah, and then he sounded odd, and then he told me my mom and brother had been shot. That was really sad Yeah, to me. Buster described his dad as, quote, destroyed and, quote, heartbroken when he arrived at Moselle that night. And then he said neither he nor Alex stayed another night in the house at Moselle. Is this lady doing? I kept seeing her okay, in the trial. I don't know because I wanted to know that too. I kept seeing her do that too. She's talking. I know that that's a thing that you talk like into. A transcriber. I'm wondering if that's what they do with court reporting now, but how could you possibly? How can you listen and talk at the same time? There's no way. It would be much easier to type like they do on their little yeah. doohickeys. Or just record it and type it later. Yeah. <laughs> like a normal transcription. I don't know what the fuck that is. So there's a lady that has like this weird mouth thing that goes over her entire mouth. And it looks like she's probably speaking into it. If anyone knows, please let us know. Yeah, what is that? It looks really weird. It's very weird. Among the defense's witnesses was the big man himself, Alec Murdoch. 
Yes, he decided to testify in his own trial. (laughs) I had a physical reaction to this when he decided to do this. For some reason, it gave me anxiety. Oh, yeah. It made me feel so uncomfortable. I felt oddly bad for him because of, I know defense attorneys, like, they can specialize in making someone look more fragile or vulnerable or get sympathy. They, like, he has lost so much weight. He looks so much older than he did. He does. And, like, I guess he is just, like, a master of manipulation. The way he speaks to people is just so kind. Right. And I can see how he conned so many people. Oh, my God. Yes, me too. Because it was uncomfortable for me to see... This man, like, go through this. It was weird. I don't know. I had a physical reaction to it. It was so uncomfortable. I almost had to stop watching. I was, I just felt nervous the entire time I was watching it. And I don't know why, but, like, from the moment he got up there, like, when they were like, do you really want to do this? And he was like, yes, I want to do this. And I was like, oh, God, here we go. (laughs) Because it's almost like... You're putting yourself on a chopping block almost or like yeah. in the gallows. And like, he's a lawyer. He knows what's about to come. Yeah. He knows how hard they're going to grill him. You just don't see it every day where the defendant is on the stand and like. No, it's pretty for rare reason. actually. Right. Uh, it was rough. It was rough. But I kept having conflicting feelings through it, and I will, I'm going to play you a little video first, just to kick off his testimony, because I've got a bunch on his testimony here. I'm just going to play you the video, so in my script here, I'll just tell you. I said, before we get into the testimony, we have to address something first. Okay. And I'm just going to play you the video. Uh, Boat case, I'm sorry. The boat rat case. Can we agree that that's what we're talking about when we say the boat case, February in 2019? Well, there's two things. You you referring to the civil case when you say the boat case. Okay. But when I think about the boat case, I think about the charges that y'all brought against Pawpaw. Okay. So, but there also the civil case. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, Pawpaw, that's, that was your new name for Paul? I mean, that I called him Paw Paw. Maggie called him Paw Paw. Bus calls him Paw Paw. Sure. Roro calls him Paw Paw. I mean, that's Roro. Not, that's Who was Roro? Ro, that's Rogan Gibson. Okay. And this jury, of course, has heard multiple recorded statements of you during the course of this. Did you ever refer to Paul as Paw Paw during that? I don't know. You don't? Do you recall? How I referred to, to, I can say Paul if you prefer that. No, I, I, you can call him whatever you want. I'm just asking you if you ever called him that during the course of that entire investigation. Or is that also the first time today, at least publicly? Is today the first time I've called my son Paul, Paul, Paul? No, sir, that is not correct. Have you ever called him that on all the recorded statements that this jury has heard? I don't know. You ever called Rogan Roro? I call him Rogan. recorded statements. All the time. And the recorded statements, did you ever call him that? I don't know. I mean, I called him Rogan also, so I I don't know. But I'm happy to call him Rogan, and I'm happy to call Paul, Paul. 
Let's talk about, and I'll be, I'll be specific with the boat race, wreck criminal case and the boat wreck civil case, okay? Is yes, that sir. fair? Yes, sir. All right. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I was like, damn, when he Whoa. did this. <laughs> yeah, row, row. When he said row, row, I lost it. Yeah. I was like, are you row, just to um, let everybody know that didn't listen to all the interviews, he never called Paul, 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 no. or Rogan, Roro, in any of those. <laughs> Nor I saw, I didn't listen to all the jail tapes, but I saw somebody comment online, of course, you know, take that with a grain of salt, but he never said that in any of the jail tapes either. He never called either of them that. Yeah. And I noticed he also would call Buster Bus. And Maggie Mags. Yeah. Like he had little cutesy names for everyone in the trial. Yep. Yep. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Mags. He said Mags a lot. I mean, I honestly think his, I don't know whose idea it was, but either way, his lawyers were probably like, yeah, that's a great idea. Let's I'm do sure this. I'm sure it was 100% his idea. And they were probably like, the fuck? <laughs> because... To me, it comes off like a sympathy reach. Yes, but also just like you're not taking this seriously. Yeah. Like you're not being professional. You're not so overwhelmed by this that you're going to just like be serious and straight to the point and like answer the questions like you are going to actually call your son Papa. You're treating it like it's something casual that you're doing. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And that totally backfired. It backfired him. huge. Someone made a Twitter account <laughs> with the <laughs> handle Pawpaw Tracker and counted every time he said Pawpaw during the testimony. And the grand total was 136. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. He, because every time he would mention Paul, he said Pawpaw. He never said Paul. Like, maybe once or twice, but the majority of it was Pawpaw. And I'm sure if Paul could hear his dad talking about him like that, he'd be like, what the fuck, man? Yeah. Yeah. Who would want to be called that? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> my grandpa was called Pawpaw. Yeah, but <laughs> mine too. But Paul was not a grandpa. <laughs> that we know of. So, that was kind of a... Flash forward, I just wanted to throw that ridiculous thing out there before we talked about this. So Alec took the stand and he actually was ready and willing to admit that he lied to the police about his whereabouts on the night of the 7th. Mm-hmm. That's all he could do. That's his only option. Literally, the prosecution asked every single witness up to this point. They showed everyone the mm-hmm. video and said, who do you hear in this video? Everyone said Alec, 100%. It's, I mean, it's him. There's nothing he could have done. No. The only reason he told the truth was because he had been caught red-handed. Yep. There's no way he could wiggle his way out of that one. He probably thought he looked like the best person ever, even admitting to that. I don't know how he lives with all the lies that he tells all the time. I don't know how it... <laughs> how do you even keep up with all your lies? I don't like, know. I can't even keep up with what we said last week. I can't either. <laughs> I have no clue. This is why I can't lie. Ever. I know. Yeah, like, when I would tell, like, stupid lies, like, say, for instance, like, to my parents or something back in the day, and then, you know, like, those lies turn into other lies and all this kind of stuff. 
there was a point in my life I was like, I'm like, I'm not lying anymore. <laughs> I just can't do this. <laughs> and let me just make this clear. Mallory didn't lie about bad things. She lied about normal things. I didn't lie about where I was on the night of a murder or. <laughs> no, Mallory lied about like she went to a club. Or I drank alcohol or I lived with my boyfriend. <laughs> normal things that everyone does. Just so everyone knows, my mom does know now that I live with my boyfriend. She has for like 10 years. So. <laughs> and she's still punishing you. <laughs> she's At this point, she is just begging me for grandchildren. So that's fun. Mm-hmm. Thanks, mom. Don't do that to your kids. Seriously. You never know. Like, No, it's true. Like, You never know what anyone's going through. What if they do want to have kids and can't? What mm-hmm. if they just don't want to have kids and you're just being... Pushy an asshole. And an asshole, yep. Like, it's crazy. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so so Alec gets on the stand. So now this is his version of the events that day. So according to him, on June 7th, in the beginning of the day, he was at work. He says Maggie was going to a doctor's appointment in Charleston and had some stuff to do at Edisto. I don't think I mentioned this in the first part of the series or before the break or anything. They had a property at Edisto, South Carolina, which Maggie preferred to stay at. She did not really live full-time at Moselle Mm -hmm. with Alec. He said that he always asked Maggie to stay with him in Moselle, but often she would go back to Edisto. I heard that was more of a thing after the boat wreck because she didn't like to be around that area because people would see her in the grocery store and there was, like, gossip going around about Uh, the family. Also, her and Alec, I've heard, were not on the best of terms, so she just liked to stay in Edisto. So CB, the groundskeeper at their Moselle property, who I mentioned had the crazy FBI story Mm -hmm. about being on an undercover FBI team and killing Black Panthers or some shit. Mm -hmm. (laughs) By the way, CB had like a chemistry degree or something Hmm. and was a chemistry teacher and he got fired for having an inappropriate relationship with a student. (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) That story is true. (laughs) Well, he obviously wasn't that good at chemistry because he sprayed poison all over something. Right? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Oh my God. That is disgusting. Did he teach high school? Yeah, I think it was high school. I, I don't know for sure, but I think it was. I just thought that was an interesting detail. So, yeah, he testified that CB sprayed the sunflowers with something wrong and they died. So they had to replant them. And then Paul came home to deal with the sunflowers. And he and Alec meet up at Moselle. They go to the Dove Field in Buster's black truck. Alec says at this point they rode the property and spent time together. They went to some food plots, the duck pond cabin. I know I've said this a hundred times, but they went to the shop, which I think has some like just crap in it, like machines and maybe some vehicles or something. I don't know. Mm -hmm. And the shop is actually pretty close to the kennels, I think. So there was that Snapchat video from Paul's phone that was taken of him messing with the fruit tree. And it was at a food plot they call the Sawtooth Oaks. So they talk about that, and then he says at some point they must have split up because he then says, Paul got to the house just before 7 p.m., 
and Alex says he got home somewhere around 6.42 or 6.45. Then he says Maggie arrived at 8 or after 8. And then Alex says at that point he was at the shop. Alex says then Maggie went to the house and he went to the house at the same time. He said he talked to Maggie and then he decided to take a shower. After his shower, he changed into shorts and a shirt. At this point, Blanca, their housekeeper, had prepared dinner. So Maggie, Alec, and Paul all ate in the den in front of the TV. Alec says after dinner, Paul left the den to do something, but he says he doesn't know what he was doing. He was just in the house still at that point. Mm -hmm. Maggie said she wanted to go to the kennels, and she actually asked Alec to go too, but he said he didn't want to go because it was hot and he just had a shower. So Maggie left and Alec says Paul left with her and that they rode together to the kennels. He said that? Yes. Because in questioning, he said something else. He said he wasn't sure what Paul was doing. Well, he said he wasn't sure like how she got there. Sometimes she took a bike. Sometimes she walked. And then he said he wasn't sure what Paul, what Paul was doing. So he completely changed everything. Yeah. <laughs> but this is after he already admitted that he lied. Lied. Okay. Correct. So this is the probably the This truth. is the This is his final version of the story. Okay. Got yeah. it. So I can't keep up cuz I know Jesus I Christ. know. It's yeah. And it doesn't help that we've taken like three pauses in between every episode, so. <laughs> so, Alex stayed at the house for a while, but then he says he changed his mind. And he decided to ride out to the kennels in the golf cart. So just as a reminder, in his prior story to the police, he had never said he went to the kennels until the time he arrived and saw Maggie and Paul had already been killed. When Alec arrived, he said Maggie had let the dogs out already and she was standing in the driveway. He says he talked to Maggie and then they noticed that Bubba, one of the dogs, had caught a chicken or a guinea, which... Alec describes as essentially a guard bird that would make noise, like crazy noise if someone was around. And Alec took the guinea. He said that when the dogs catch the birds, they become stunned, like kind of like limp or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so he would like put them in isolation, like in a cage or something for a while so that they could regain their bearings, I guess. Mm Mm-hmm. And apparently this was a thing they had to do multiple times because the dogs loved to chase and catch them. After he took the guinea and took it out of the dog's mouth and put it up, he says he left and went back to the house in the golf cart. And then he says he laid down on the couch and he dozed off. When he woke up, he says he decided to go see his mom. So then he says when he's leaving his mom's house, so they question him on this because there's like a, time when he was in the driveway that he like reversed and then he stopped for like a minute and a half or something and then reversed again this is all from like his car data and he explains that he dropped his phone in between the console and he was looking for it and that's why he was in the driveway for a while so then he headed back to moselle so this time he says he went into the house and there were lights on in the house but no paul or maggie He says he thought they would be back by then, and he looked around the house to make sure they weren't there, and then he decided to go back to the kennels to look for them. This time, he says he took the Suburban instead of the golf cart. 
And when arriving, he says he saw Maggie and Paul and that they had been shot. He says he jumped out of the car, but then he ran back to the car to call 911 before touching them. Mm-hmm. Which, again, doesn't make sense because he told the 911 operator that he tried to turn Paul over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> During this part of the testimony, Alec breaks down. He has several emotional breakdowns during his time on the stand and he expels a large snot string from his nose. Yeah. Let's it just hang there. He lets it hang there. Even one time he licked it. Did you see that? I didn't see him lick it. (laughs) It was like two strings on his mouth and he just, (laughs) it's so nasty. Yeah. He just let it hang, you know, like, if you've ever been really upset in front of someone, you're always trying to like hide that and like make sure you're all good and like you're very yes. hyper aware of yourself crying in front of people. Yeah. Like, but he knew people are watching. Yeah. Let's just like let it flow. Right. Let's just let it all out. Yeah. You know, there was a, I had thought previously that only one juror had come forward, but there were two that were interviewed by news and one of them said that they never saw an actual tear come from his eyes. And that's what the one of the officers testified to when they were on scene. Oh, my God. That there were no tears, only dramatics. I don't see any tear. Oh, do you? Oh, yeah, I do. Yeah. Well, maybe he shed a few. He mustered a few. <laughs> but only when he's got mega snot going on. He was just feeling sorry for himself. Yeah. Okay, so he says he calls 911, and then he says he tried to turn Paul's body over after that. He said when he tried to turn him over, Paul's phone popped out of his pocket, and that he tried to put it back in, but he ended up just laying it on his body instead. I take issue with this. How does a phone pop out of your pocket? I don't know how it pops out. I have no clue. And especially in, like, men's jeans, the pockets are really deep. Yeah, and phones are, like, tight to your butt. Yeah. And if you're just trying to turn someone, like he's laying on his... I think he was face down. Yeah. So I don't understand the mechanics of that. I don't physics. Anyway. And I I don't even understand why he even felt the need to say it in the first place. Like, if that had truly happened, that would be like a minuscule detail that you wouldn't even think about. You're just like, oh, crap, his phone fell out. Let me just... I well, don't know. he thought about it because his fingerprints were on it. Yeah, so I know. That's, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. That's what I'm saying is <laughs> it was important to him for some reason. <laughs> and he did gain intel from the phone, we know. Yeah. So, yeah. And then in his testimony, he says that he said, quote, I should have known to Paul. And I think that was, I don't know if that was recorded on a 911 call, but some somehow everyone knew about it. And he explains that this was due to the threats Paul was getting from the boating accident that killed Mallory Beach. And then while on the phone with 911, Alec decides he's going to go back to the house and get a gun because he feels unsafe. So he goes to the house to get a gun and then he returns to the scene of the crime. And then shortly after is when we see him on the body cam footage with the police. So, you know what? I don't know if I have the details about Paul's phone. Do you want to sure talk about that? So, when Paul's phone pops out of his pocket and he picks it up and tries to mess with it a little bit, he happens to see that Rogan has called and texted several times. Mm. Oh, yeah. And that's 
why he calls Rogan. He calls him. That's that right. night. Over and over. But Rogan was asleep. Yeah. Trying to figure out, like, did he see something? Like He was he, paranoid. Was he there? Right. What? Why is he calling? And he also called Maggie several times. Yes. And we know he took Maggie's phone and saw that. Yeah. So he's like, why is he calling them? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, he was in damage control mode. Yep. So and for those who don't know, Rogan is Roro. <laughs> Rogan is Roro, yeah. So his version of the story, like I said, is he drove the golf cart down to the kennels and spoke briefly with Maggie, but then headed back to the house alone a few minutes later. So about two minutes after he said he left, both Paul and Maggie's phones were locked and were never unlocked again, suggesting that they were killed around then. Mm -hmm. Two minutes. (laughs) Yeah. Didn't hear a gunshot. Probably took him two minutes to drive back to the property with the golf cart. Yeah, and he would have heard gunfire. Yeah. Absolutely. From a freaking semi-automatic rifle and a shotgun? Are you kidding? Oh, yeah. It would have been like... Echoed like for miles. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my God. So... Creighton Waters, prosecutor, accused him, obviously, of making up a new story that fits with the facts that can't be denied. And Alec, of course, said, no, sir, that's not true. Alec stuck to his story, saying that he has always believed that Pawpaw was a target as a result of his involvement of the fatal boat wreck in 2019. He also said in his testimony that he denied ever having seen, touched, or known about the blue raincoat, by the way. He said that... After the caretaker said that she saw him carrying it in. <laughs> blue tarpon. That's crazy. <laughs> My husband has told me I need to come up with new adjectives. That's ludicrous. I know. I do, too, because I say that's crazy all the time. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I told Ashley this the other day. When I was editing one of our episodes, I literally deleted, like, I don't even know how many times that I said, that's crazy, because I just said it too much. Well, everything we talk about is just absurd. It is. That's true. (laughs) I don't even know what else to say. I know. It's wild. (laughs) It's bonkers. (laughs) So then they were talking about why he lied about being at the kennels. So his explanation was his opioid addiction and... His distrust of SLED made him paranoid. Mm -hmm. He said he thought that Agent David Owen, who was the SLED agent that interviewed him those three times, was actually a different SLED agent that he believed had manufactured evidence in another criminal case. But then he was like, oh, but then I I figured out it wasn't him. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that's why he lied. And I remember this part so well. Creighton Waters was going... Back and forth with him, like, when he's telling the story, he's like, so is this the point when you decided to lie? Yes! Is this the point when yes. you decided to lie? And he's, he's like, like, I don't know when I decided to lie. I don't know when I decided to lie. It's he like, literally, like, second by second was like, is this the point? Is this the point? Yeah. It was really funny. Obviously, he decided to lie from the very beginning. He Yes. <laughs> I don't think he decided in the moment to lie about that. But I think that was all part of his tactic because obviously it was from the very beginning. Like at what point he could probably pinpoint the time he decided to lie if he was paranoid. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 
I think you're right. He could have said, oh, when I realized, when I thought that that sled agent was the guy that manufactured evidence, I yeah. was like, oh, crap, I've got to when it, When he cover introduced up. himself as David, I was like, David, oh, yes. the sled agent that manufactured evidence. Yep. Yeah. So Creighton Waters points out that there are four minutes of activity beginning at 9.02 p.m. where he called Alec a busy bee. 283 steps are recorded between 9.02 and 9.06 p.m. <laughs> this was another one of those where he asked him repeatedly, what was he doing in those four minutes? Like over and over again, because he just kept saying, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Or no, no. This is what he kept saying. He was, he was saying he was preparing to leave. Mm-hmm. Preparing to leave. Well, what does that mean, Alec? What were you actually doing? You were obviously walking around 283 steps and... Four minutes. I mean, that's a good amount of steps. But his reply, his final reply was, I know what I wasn't doing, Mr. Waters. What I wasn't doing was doing anything I believe you've implied. Cleaning off or washing off guns or putting guns in a raincoat. Another thing I noticed about Alex's testimony was that he could not just give a straight answer. No, he deflects all the time. Yes, he would go off on like these nostalgic stories. Oh, I know this person from back in the day when we did this and that, and he's a good man. Like he would go on tangents and try and sound so. And you know what? In some courts that wouldn't fly because there are some judges and lawyers that will stop the witnesses and say, that's not relevant. Yeah. You have to shut up. You answer the question and only the question. And Because I've seen multiple cases where they'll, like, stop the witness from saying too much, you know? But I guess they figured, this is the defendant. He's going to just, like, expose himself. Yeah, let him keep talking, man. Just (laughs) just keep talking. Keep going, baby. (laughs) Oh, my God. But it was a lot. Yeah, it was. And then the last thing I have about his testimony doesn't mean anything, but Creighton asked... Mr. Murdoch, are you a family annihilator? And he said, you mean, like, did I kill my wife and son? No. I would never hurt Maggie Murdoch. I would never hurt Paul Murdoch under any circumstances. But what about Dick Harpootlian's questioning of Alec? The first question he asks Alec, he's like, Alec. Did you blow your son's oh, brains out? Oh, I meant to put that in there. Because, yes, he loved that phrase. Yeah. Did you blow your son's brains out or your son's head off? Or yeah. He said it multiple times. Multiple times. And actually, I think it was Jim Griffin that said that. Oh, okay. I think it was Jim Griffin because in the closing arguments, he said it again. And I was just like, what are you doing? <laughs> I don't understand how that helped anything. No, it was just dramatic for no reason. Yeah. (laughs) I'm glad you brought that up because I meant to put that in here and I forgot. Well, I just remember when he was testifying, I was at work and you were able to watch it. Mm -hmm. And you were just like, the defense just asked him if he (laughs) blew his son's head off. And I was just like, what? It was so dramatic. Were they just trying to get him to cry or were they just trying to? They were trying to make it sound like it's ridiculous that he would do that. Yeah. Like there's no way a dad could do that. Exactly. So Alex's brother, John Marvin, 
went up to the stand. And <laughs> why can't he just go by John though? Like, why is it John Marvin? I don't know. <laughs> John Marvin. Oh my God. <laughs> it's that Marvin is not his last name, obviously. He goes by John Marvin Murdoch. And he's very Kiki. <laughs> he is Kiki. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. So uh, I feel like it's weird. Alec used to be Booba and now he's Kiki. Yeah. <laughs> to explain what we're talking about, oh, there's this TikTok that someone made, and it's apparently some study that somebody did. Mm-hmm. There's these two shapes. One is very pointy. Yeah, and, like an explosion. Yeah. And then one is very um, blobby. blobby. Yeah. And they said that the shapes were named Kiki and Booba. Or no, they, they say, okay, which shape is Kiki and which shape oh, is Oh, they ask, Booba. yes. Yes. And everyone always says the blobby shape is Booba mm-hmm. and the pointy shape is Kiki. But people can be Kiki or Booba. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. I think we're both Booba. I think I was about to say, I think we're both Booba. Anyway, John Marvin is Kiki. John Marvin is definitely Kiki. Now I'm going through everyone. I'm so trying sorry. to think. No. <laughs> no, I'm just like thinking about who's Booba and Kiki now. I was just looking at his face like Kiki. He's Kiki. So add anything to this testimony that you want to. The only thing I have is the really kind of funny thing. Yeah, there's only one relevant detail. Okay, I'm going to play a video for you guys. So John Marvin was questioned about how his brother Alec was feeling while driving to a detox center in Atlanta. (laughs) And this was the defense questioning him. Like, what were they trying to get from this? Sympathy? I don't know, but I just remember you texted me one day and you were like, this trial is playing out like a roast. Yeah. (laughs) Like, it really is. So, yeah, I think I'll let this one just speak for itself. Can you describe for the jury Alex's condition, like physical condition in the car? Yes, sir. So when I met Randy over in Savannah, he had Alec and, and I got in the car or, or Randy's truck with him. Um, I'd never seen anything like it. I've, I've seen television shows of, of talking about the leg twitching and, and the squirminess, if you will. And, and that's the first thing I, I mean, you could just tell he was sweating. He was, he was thrashing about, um, you know, Jim, it, I don't around? know how much detail you want me to go into. What, did he turn around on the seat of the car, and what was he doing? Yeah, so so maybe halfway there, um, at one point, he had taken his seat belt off, and he had his head down where your fanny would be in the seat, and is trying to stretch his legs and just kind of steady, just like thrashing them and kicking them. Um, it's just, again, I, I've seen TV, but I've never seen something like this in real life. And... Was he able to control himself? No, sir. Um, I said about detail. So he he messed himself. He he had diarrhea. Um, just couldn't control it. And then... Um, and, and I say diarrhea. I'm not talking about at a restroom. I'm talking about in the car, in his pants. Oh, my God. <laughs> I love how he was like... I don't know how much detail you want me to go into and kind of hesitates going there. And then 
And then he fully goes there, like, yeah. without being questioned. Well, I love how Jim is just, like, trying to get this out of him. Like, did he turn around in the seat? Was he in control of himself? Yes. And he's just like, tell us the diarrhea story. But why, Jim? Why? Yeah, what is the point? Is that to, like, bring sympathy to Alec? Probably. I mean, that's a really gruesome picture. Like, everything else he was describing, his, like, leg, like, twitching and... Him, it's him going through withdrawals from opioids, mm-hmm. which has got to suck to see and also live through. But I am so far <sighs> removed from what that could possibly be. I have no idea. But apparently diarrhea happens. Yeah. And why it was relevant, I don't know. Well, apparently this opioid thing is the reason for literally all of his misdeeds. Oh, yeah. Because he was paranoid. Well, also, he needed to buy them, so he stole from people. Oh, right. Yeah, that too. (laughs) Obviously. (laughs) That's a big one. But to feel the need to yank out of John Marvin that he diarrheaed his pants. And at that moment, they turn the camera to Alec. Yeah. And he's just sitting there so stoically like, oh, my God. (laughs) Sucks, buddy. And the, I remember watching the trial. The live chat like went off. <laughs> I didn't see that moment live. Damn, I and, wish I had. Um, also, when he said he put his head where his fanny would be. Fanny. I guess the British people were like, what the hell? Because fanny oh, yeah. in the UK is vagina. <laughs> so they're just like, what? Is <laughs> he... But really, I think a man? It's so cute that he says Fanny. Or <laughs> <laughs> Fanny. Because I remember my grandparents saying yes. stuff like that. I'm going to swat your Fanny. Yep. They're stuck back in the back in the day, I feel like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this part I did not see. Okay, so. <laughs> so <laughs> previously in the trial. The defense had argued that Paul was shot in the back of the head at point-blank range. On February 28th, crime scene expert Dr. Kenneth Kinsey and Attorney General Alan Wilson acted out the defense's version of how Paul was murdered. So yeah, will you describe the photo here? (laughs) Oh, is that Jim? So it is Attorney General Alan and then Dr. Kinsey is, is... the one on the lower part. And I guess that's Dick in the background here. I don't know, uh, I don't know what doing. the hell okay. that person's doing. <laughs> so one man is holding a, is that a rifle? Looks like it. And he has it kind of like pointed straight down. And there is a man right beneath the barrel ducking down. It is. It looks crazy. It looks chaotic. It looks <laughs> like it shouldn't be happening in a courtroom. No. It does not look safe. No. Well, there's there were multiple instances of this in this courtroom for some reason. I'll describe another one later where guns are being pointed at people. Could you imagine if a Alec Baldwin situation happened? Oh, holy fuck. And someone got killed. Oh my god. That yeah. is that is a crazy thing that happened also. Mhm. So Dr. Kinsey discounted what he described as a preposterous and unscientific theory from the defense as he went into gruesome detail about the extent of the injuries he has seen on victims who have suffered a contact wound to the head with a shotgun. 
And like we just described, Attorney General Wilson, he told jurors he was practicing gun safety, but that Dr. Kinsey asked him to point the gun at him so that they could demonstrate how the theory of Paul being shot at point-blank range was incorrect. Dr. Kinsey testified that the state of the crime scene was inconsistent with the defense's theory, saying that this wouldn't have caused blood, brain, and other biological matter to hit the door frame of the feed room. He also said Paul's injuries were not consistent with being shot at point blank. Dr. Kinsey also said that he had zero confidence in the testimony of defense witness Mike Sutton, which I didn't cover him, but this guy suggested Maggie's killer was only five foot two. Oh my God, I remember that part. Yeah. <laughs> Alec is six foot four. The reason that they were saying the shooter would have had to be five foot two to perform this act is because some expert came on the stand <laughs> talking about like ballistics and like the path of the bullet and the distance and like how it hit like the doghouse and where the person would be standing and like they calculated the yeah. height of the person would have to be like five two. So the prosecution kept saying, so the 12 year olds came and (laughs) (laughs) so the 12 year old kid came and killed Paul and Maggie, like kept bringing up 12 year olds. Oh my God. So fucking funny. Yeah. All I said was that Mike Sutton had previously testified that person who shot Maggie had to be five, two to five, four, based on, like what you said, on the projection of the bullets. But Dr. Kinsey said a six-foot-four person could absolutely have shot Maggie from the angles the defense team claimed. Even if the angles were correct, Dr. Kinsey said that there are a bunch of variables to determining the height of the shooter, including the fact that this was a very dynamic crime scene, with both the killer and the victim moving. Mm Mm-hmm. He said it would not be possible to determine the shooter's height with the available information. I mean, that sounds reasonable. Absolutely. He said they could be 5'4", they could be 6'4", or they could even be 7'4". Yeah, like he could have even rolled up in a golf cart. (laughs) For instance. (laughs) (laughs) That would make him 5'2". Right. (laughs) So that's actually all I have for the witnesses. So the next thing I'm going to do is actually go through the timeline one more time. I know I'm sorry. We've gone through it like four times at this point. But this time I'm going to go through it referencing the cell data, the vehicle data, and the witness testimony. So this is like the actual picture of what we have of what happened. But first, since this episode is already like a thousand years long, we are going to take another little break. But we'll be back the same night. <laughs> yeah, we're actually going to record this, the break in the same... Not that you care either way, but <laughs> we'll be right back. <laughs> and we are back. And it has not been a week this time. <laughs> Only a few minutes. Enough time for us to refill our drinks. Yep. So I said I was going to get into the actual timeline based off of all the data that we have and some witness testimony So I'm going to say people are at places, and this is from cell phone data or vehicle data. We know they're there. Facts. So Alec is at work at 12 
8.38 p.m. And then this is from witness testimony. While at work, a colleague named Jeannie confronts him regarding $792,000 in missing fees from a case he worked on with another attorney. And Alec apparently fakes a call about his dad to get out of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so then on the timeline, John Marvin, Alec's brother that blew the lid on his diarrhea, um, <laughs> sends out a group text that says, quote, dad, hospital in Savannah. And then Maggie texts Blanca at 3.55 p.m. saying she is waiting at her doctor's office. So Maggie's in Charleston. And then she tells Blanca that Alec had asked her to come home. At some point, Maggie had also told her sister they were going to go visit Alec's parents at their home on Almeda Place in Barnville. Which, as we said before, they just call it Almeda. So Jeannie testified that at 4 p.m. Alec was still in the office and he had asked her for his 401k information. Alec's vehicle shows that it was taken out of park at 6.23 p.m., and that is when Alec heads home to Moselle. So when he previously said he doesn't think he was there at 6 o'clock, he was there until 6.23 p.m. He arrived at the Moselle house at 6.42 before, before Paul arrived home. Paul arrives home at 6.53 p.m., and that is different from what he said before, too, because he said Paul arrived home around, like, 5. And Paul came home in John Marvin's white F-150, so he and John Marvin had switched cars at this point. At 7.04, Paul's location is noted as being at the Moselle house. And then Paul and Alec take Buster's black truck out to what they call Ride the Property, like he testified. And then Alec texts CB, the groundskeeper, at 718, saying, call me, please. And then at 721, Maggie accesses Find My iPhone. Paul's Snapchat video of Alec messing with the fruit tree is taken at 739 p.m. There was a cabin on the property as well. Like, we kind of mentioned this before. Like, we don't know if that's the little house or if there's a separate cabin, but... Paul is actually placed at the cabin from 745 to 756. Location data shows Alec and Paul all over the property at this time. The cabin, the kennels, the shop, shooting range, doing, you know, what they said they were doing. And both Paul and Alec's cell phones are located at the Moselle house at 808. So Maggie arrives at the house at 817. And then this is when the family supposedly all eats dinner. At 8.31, Maggie opens the group text from John Marvin and then locks her phone again. At 8.35, Paul is still at the Moselle house. And then at 8.38, three minutes later, his location changes to the kennels on the property. Paul calls his friend Rogan at 8.40. Like we said, he was keeping cash, and then that's when he tells him he'll send him the video of the dog. And then at 8.44... To 8.45, because that video was almost a minute long. It was 50 seconds. The Snapchat video of Paul looking at Cash's tail is recorded or saved. As I mentioned earlier, Maggie, Paul, and Alec can all be heard on the video. Paul then sends a few texts to a friend at 8.47 to 
the last text message that's read on Paul's phone was read at 848. Paul's phone locks for the last time at 849. Maggie gets a text at 849 and she unlocks her phone and reads it. Within the same minute, the phone locks for the last time. It's horrifying. I know. Paul receives a text from Rogan at 849 asking if he can get a picture of Cash's tail, but the text is never read. From 850 to 852, there is no recorded activity for any of the three Murdochs. It is during this time investigators and prosecutors believe Paul and Maggie were shot. Since we now know Alec was at the kennels at 844 to 845 because his voice is heard in the Snapchat video, that gives Alec five minutes, ten minutes at the most, to get the bird, the guinea, out of Bubba's mouth and put it in its little isolation thing, get in his vehicle, get the fuck out, and be out of earshot of any gunfire by the time the shooting started. Mm -hmm. At no point, like I said, does Alec ever admit to hearing any gunshots. Do with that what you will. Yep. So at 8.53, Maggie's phone display is turned on. And the display goes from portrait to sideways. And 59 steps are recorded on Maggie's phone, beginning at 8.53. The phone's orientation changes a bunch of times from 8.53 to 8.55. And the recorded steps end at 8.55. So, presumably, somebody picked it up and... I don't know, from just like fumbling with it or whatever, the orientation is changing a bunch of times... And then it's put back down, presumably. At 9.02, Alec grabs his phone and it begins recording his steps. At 9.04, he made an outgoing call to Maggie, which obviously went unanswered. He turned his phone off and on again at 9.04, which he did that a couple times. I was wondering why he turned his phone off and on. Mm. Did you ever hear anything about that? I didn't. Okay. I don't know why he did that. He makes a call to his brother Randy at 9.05, which lasts for 18 seconds. So I'm not sure if he actually talked to him or what. But at 9.06, he calls Maggie again. And again, no answer. And then his steps end at 9.06. So this is that 283 steps where Creighton Waters was like, what are you doing? And he was mm-hmm. like, I'm preparing to leave. <laughs> and he was like, but what were you doing? Getting rid of my clothes, taking a shower, (laughs) putting a gun in a tarp or a raincoat and hiding it and then and all that stuff and getting ready to go to my mom's house. So I can put the fucking coat there and have an alibi. Yeah. So at 906 is when Alex's car is started and taken out of park. He calls Maggie yet again at 906 and then he texts Maggie at 908 saying, quote, Going to check on M, which is him referring to his mother. From 9.10 to 9.22, Alec makes multiple calls to Buster, Chris Wilson, which is his lawyer friend, and John Marvin, his brother, and receives calls from Chris Wilson and CB. At 9.22, Alec pulls into the grass at Almeida where his mom Libby lives. And he makes a call to her because they said that they always call her when they get there to let her know that they're coming inside the house. And at 929, we know Rogan calls Paul 
which obviously, again, goes unanswered. Maggie gets a text from Rogan also at 934 asking her to have Paul call him. Alex's car starts back up at 941 when he starts to leave but puts it back in park at 943. So this is where he's saying he dropped his phone between the seat and the console and he was trying to fish it out. So had he not driven? He was getting ready to leave his mom's house. He like took it out of park. And then I guess supposedly he, he dropped his phone, put it back in park, looked for his phone, and then oh, left. Okay. So yeah, the car is taken back out of park again at 944. So it was about three minutes total. And he heads back to Moselle. During the drive, Chris Wilson calls Alec, who wanted to talk about a case. The call lasts 123 seconds. Rogan calls Paul again at 957. <laughs> then he sends a text to Paul that just says, yo. <laughs> <laughs> but obviously the text is never read. At 10 p.m., Alec puts the car in park about halfway down the driveway and then in drive again for 12 seconds and then in park again for one second and then out of park for 13 seconds and then parks again finally at 10.01. He makes another call to Maggie, which do I even need to say it? It goes unanswered. She's dead. He does not turn the car off. He turns his phone off and on again at 10.04. And then he gets back in the car at 10.04 and drives to the kennels. He parks at the kennels at 10.05. And then by 10.06, he has seen Paul and Maggie's bodies and calls 911 using his phone through the Bluetooth in his car. In his first police interview, he said he made a call to, I believe it was Rogan at 10.06. Mm-hmm. but he actually made a call to 911 at 10.06. And when he was saying that, he was looking at his phone and the timestamps. Oh, my God. Yeah. Because he had gotten it out to say, oh, I called Maggie at this time. I called. That's ridiculous. Yeah. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Also, didn't he say that he got out of the car and, like, checked them before he called 911? Well, in the 911 call, he even says it. Yeah. That he went and flipped Paul over and did all this stuff. And it just wasn't true. Because but really, he just like pulled up in his car, saw them through the headlights, and called through his car. Yes. Right. So he parks at the kennels at 10.05. And seconds kind of matter in this. But he parks at 10.05. And by 10.06, he calls 911. I um, think it was 20 seconds. Yeah. Yeah. 20 seconds. So it was probably like 10.05. 40. <laughs> because I believe it was Jim Griffin that goes up and sets a timer for 20 seconds during the um, oh. during one of the witness testimony. And like the courtroom is just silent for 20 seconds. And it feels like an eternity in that moment. But he was doing that to uh, illustrate how long 20 seconds could be. But if you were to like recreate it yourself. I still don't think there's any way. And do the things that he said he did. There is no way. No. Because you got to walk from the car to Paul and then try to turn him over. And then you see his phone pops out and then it goes on the ground. And then obviously he fiddles with it. Yeah. And then he decides to put it back on his body. And then he's got to walk all the way over to Maggie. And then they were like in different spaces. Like Maggie was outside of the kennels. Correct. And then Paul was inside the kennels into a little room. It's like a, almost like a little closet. Yeah, it's the they, feed room. They call it the feed room. So he, I guess he first saw Maggie. 
I would assume. I would assume, yeah. And to walk to Paul, I think that would take 20 seconds in itself. Yeah. I don't know. Depending on where he parked, but still, I just don't see it. So at 10.07, 911 begins recording the call. And then he tells the 911 operator that he last talked to Maggie one and a half to two hours ago. And at 10.11, he tells 911 he is going to go get a gun from the house because of what happened to Paul and Maggie. And then his car is taken out of park. And then at 10.12, he parks. He's going to get the gun. And then his car is taken back out of park at 10.13. And at 10.16, Alec asks the 911 operator if he can get off the phone so he can call his family. And the call ends at 10.17. From 10.17 until the police show up, Alec is on the phone calling people. He called Randy, John Marvin, Rogan, his sister-in-law, Christy, and he texts Rogan as well. So he's really focused on Rogan here. Mm -hmm. He's like, needs to get in touch with Rogan. And he calls Randy again. And then at 1030, he's on body cam lying to police. And then he calls John Marvin again. At 1040, for some reason... Alec Googles Whaley's Edisto. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I looked that restaurant up, too, and I was just like, ew. <laughs> you're a millionaire, and this is what you're into? Right. Yeah, it's a restaurant in Edisto where, you know, Maggie would stay at that property out there. So the defense attorney, Philip Barber, which we haven't mentioned him yet, he said that the search for Whaley's restaurant was evidence that his client was in shock after finding the bodies or quote fat fingering his cell phone. Yeah. <laughs> Which could be true. Yeah. I've done it. I've done it too. I just thought it was funny. <laughs> yeah. Yep. It had to be fat fingering. Like, yeah. Why would he ever look that up? Do you go Whaley's Edisto? <laughs> it's like, hmm, you know what? I think I'm going to take myself out to dinner tomorrow. <laughs> I'm free man now. I I'm going to go to Whaley's. <laughs> yeah, I think he just was like fumbling with his phone. Yeah, yeah. But he also got a text, a group text, where it was like a girl in a swimsuit or something. I vaguely remember seeing that, but I don't have that in here. Do you know anything else about um, it? It was like a group text with a bunch of guys. They said oh my this- God, I remember what you're talking about. So Alec Murdoch received a group text message from Michael Gunn stating, she brought the heat from Miami, boys. Oh, my God. And it's just this. Does it, I haven't seen it. Does it have a picture? Yeah, this is the picture. Oh, my God. It's the lamest picture of a girl in like a super skimpy swimsuit with heart sunglasses drinking a drink. Yeah, she's but, like on a boat. During, so he opened this text during all of the shit show that was in, unfolding at 1022. <laughs> so at 1022, okay, that's in between the 911 call and when police show up. So that's when he's like making multiple calls to everybody. I was just looking at other ones. He got a text at 4.02 p.m. earlier that day. It was another one from Michael Gunn stating, Lena in the middle, fire emoji. And it's another girl in her swimsuit. What is wrong with this guy? I don't know if he was like a sugar daddy or something, but this was the picture that he sent. Oh my God. What a 
pig. I know. Can you imagine knowing a dude that did that shit? Like, sent pictures of quote unquote babes to his yeah. guy friends and, uh. like, has some weird quip to go along with it. Like, <laughs> well, I know Tudor's old friend Vlad used to do that all oh the time. Oh my God. So these, like, pictures that girls would send him to Tudor. Are you serious? And I'd be like, what the fuck is this on your phone? And he'd be like, oh, Vlad sent that to me. <laughs> God. But like, so Alec responds to that text at 402. He responds, you old dog. Where is Lena now? What? <laughs> oh my God. So gross. Horny old men is so gross. Ew. Horny oh. old man is so gross. I hate it. I hate it. Oh my God. Okay. So. From that point on, after he Googles Whaley's Edisto and gets a bikini text, he calls and texts a bunch of people during that time. And then Buster ends up coming to the house and then they stay there until about 4 or 5 a.m., including being interviewed by the police at like 1 a.m. that day. Okay, so if you're still with me after all of that... I'm going to list some other inconsistencies and lies and like general sus things that Alec told people or did that day versus what his story is today and versus what the evidence shows. Some can be viewed as benign, but as they start to stack up, it really doesn't seem so benign because he's a known chronic liar. So much so that during the trial, the prosecution spent probably an hour or maybe even more detailing all the lies Alec has racked up and I remember Creighton Waters just being like, and you lied about this and you lied about this and you Mm -hmm. lied about this and you lied about this. And he'd be like, yes, sir. (laughs) I remember when Creighton was interviewing the woman that Alec worked with. I think she was like the manager of the firm. Was it the financial lady? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. And they went through all the financials and they're like, and what happened to that money? Alec stole it. What happened to that money? Alec Murdoch stole it. What happened to that money? Alec Murdoch stole it. Like over and over and over and over and over. He stole so (laughs) much money. Lied to so many people. Yeah. That he apparently loved and cared about. Right. Victims, family, friends. Yeah. No one knew who he was. And even his best friends got on the stand. And said, I don't know who he is. Like, I never knew. Yeah. Well, now even his own brother is like. Yeah. Fuck, I, I don't that. know what to think. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah, Randy came out after the trial saying, yeah, there's more to the story. He's not telling mm-hmm. us everything. Right. Obviously. Yeah. So these things are in no particular order. So Alec says originally that he left work around 5 p.m. that day but he we know now that he left at 6 23 and that seems like oh he just you know thought he left around five but no when he was confronted with the fact that his key card at work swiped later than that he was like no i wasn't there that late okay then how the fuck did that happen bitch like what the hell are you doing Alec also tells first responders that when riding the Moselle property with Paul that day, they rode for two hours 
in one of the sled interviews, he said maybe 45 minutes to an hour. And then on two other occasions, he said more than an hour, maybe two. So his timeline is a little fuzzy there. And this one, I thought, I'm not sure how to think about this because I kind of do believe. So Paul had high blood pressure, as I previously mentioned. And then Alex said he had talked to Paul about his feet swelling up. And, you know, he told Sled that he and Maggie were worried and wanted him to go to the doctor. And he said that Paul didn't want to go to the doctor and that it was a big, huge deal. And he was very resistant, very, very resistant in his words. But in court, there was actually a text from Paul shown where Paul is asking them to make him a doctor's appointment for his feet ASAP. Kind of sounded like he was a little worried about it. But yeah, well, call the doctor, Paul. Yourself. Yeah, Paul can call the doctor himself, but he's not going to because his parents have given him everything he's ever wanted his whole entire life. That just annoyed me. Yeah. So anyway... In two interviews, Alec said Maggie got home, then he and Paul went to the house, and then cell data proves that Maggie did not arrive at the house until after Alec and Paul were at the house. And then I mentioned this, in his first police interview, he said he called Paul at 10.06 while looking at the phone log in his phone, but his call to 911 was made at 10.06. Alex's new story says that he talks to Maggie, then he showers and changes, leaving him less than 10 minutes to eat before going to the kennels, which can be done. I mean, I do it every day. (laughs) He did previously say that it was about 15 minutes, so it could be. So Alex's original story is that he doesn't know how Paul and Maggie got to the kennels and that he himself did not go to the kennels. He said their cars were at the house. His new story says Maggie and Paul rode together to the kennels and Alec eventually took the golf cart. He now says the dogs were out when he got there and he pulled up by Maggie, talked for a short time, and he took the bird from Bubba, put it in its isolation, and he, quote, got out of there. So in the third sled interview, Alec has asked if he knew anything about Rogan's dog, Cash's tail, He says he doesn't ever remember having a conversation with Paul about it. And he said he only knew about it from Rogan later. And in the Snapchat video at the kennels, Alec can be heard in the background asking Paul about the dog. He says, how bad is it, Paul? And Paul says it's not that bad. So obviously he had talked to Paul about it. So on June 7th, the first interview, Alex said Maggie is very good about answering or calling back. So it's really odd that she didn't call him back when he called her and she didn't answer. But in court, there was testimony about bad cell service. So Alec changed his story and said that it was perfectly normal not to hear from Maggie. Okay. Yeah. Because, you, you know, there's bad service. Also, when Alec got home from his mom's house, his initial story was that the house was dark and that there was obviously nobody home. And then in the new version, he says that all the lights were on in the house. And then he went and looked. Nobody was home, so he went to the kennels. And Alec had previously said he didn't remember his last talk with Maggie. But then when Creighton Waters mentioned that again in testimony, he changed the story again and said he did remember. So just... Some shit to think about. And the last conversation he had with Maggie was about Paul's blood pressure, right? I don't know, because in his news story, he said that he talked with Maggie when he got 
to the kennels. And then the whole thing with the dog happened and the bird. Mm-hmm. And I think previously his his story was that the last conversation was about high blood pressure because that's what they talked about at dinner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then he was just like, and then I just said, I'm going back to the house and hopped on the golf cart. And left. Yeah. So this trial has not been without its crazy, weird, and yes, even funny moments. We've already gone through a few of those, but just some things that happened. A total of five jurors had to be replaced during the trial, leaving the jury with just one alternate. So the trial was six weeks, and during that time, some of the jurors were switched out because they got sick, and some of them were diagnosed with COVID, and then another one was dismissed for discussing the case. The juror that was dismissed for discussing the case was so weird. After she was excused, she told Judge Newman that she left a dozen eggs in the jury room. Why does she have a dozen eggs? Why does she have a dozen eggs? What, they're going to just sit there for eight hours? (laughs) What are you doing? You're not putting them in the fridge, babe? (laughs) Maybe they're like, natural eggs that yeah don't need to be refrigerated. Could be. but why does she have them why would you bring them to court maybe she hard boiled them and put them in a carton or Ew, something oh my god i hate that but that would smell so and bad i don't understand why i do not get it but she was not the only weird juror so but anyway judge newman he asked a member of the court staff to go retrieve her belongings, including the eggs, and she was dismissed. So this one I found out from Gigi McKelvey, who's the host of Pretty Lies and Alibis. She said that one day there was a female juror that stuck tissue in her ears mm-hmm. and like laid back in her chair. Yeah, it was during the body cam footage. Okay. She just like did not want to hear it. It's like... Babe, that's your job. Yeah. Well. That's what you're here for. The same woman, the day prior, was the woman that put a blanket over her head. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what she was trying to avoid at that point, but. Oh, my God. (laughs) So, Alex's family members were warned that they could be thrown out of the courthouse after Buster allegedly stuck his middle finger up at a witness. Do you, that's literally the picture of him doing it. Do you, do you think he's sticking his middle finger up at anybody? No, he's biting his nails. And he does that all the time. Yes. I don't know what they were talking about, but Judge Newman reportedly issued multiple warnings to several members of Alex's family about their behavior in court. There was another, who was it? Alex's sister, Lynn. She passed Alec a copy of the book, The Judge's List by John Grisham. And when she was told to stop, she did not take it well and became, well, from this source, I don't know what this means. I don't know what she actually did, but she became, quote, demonstrative with the court staff. And then after Buster supposedly flicked somebody off, they moved the family members to the back of the courtroom And Buster was mad, and so he kicked over a water bottle in anger. (laughs) (laughs) That's such a rich kid daddy boy thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think he's flicking anyone off. He he was biting his nails the entire time. Yes, he was. 
Yeah, this is so dumb. People are so dumb. So when Lynn actually handed him that book, it actually made them have to give a drug test to Alec because they thought that maybe she was giving him something in the book. Oh. So they drug tested him, but they didn't say whether he was positive for anything or not. Wow. Another controversy arose when it emerged that a GoFundMe had been set up on January 8th for Alec's mother's caregiver, Shelly. Oh my God. For her bravery. (laughs) Shelly's daughter, Rochelle, launched a GoFundMe campaign to, quote, reward her for her bravery and her honesty as it was one of the hardest things she had to do. Talking about testifying yeah, in court. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that was very hard, but like a GoFundMe. But do you need money for that? During the court? Yeah. During the trial? Yeah. Do you need money for that? No. Do you need $20,000 for that, which is what the goal was? That's really just. It doesn't make any sense. Honestly, that's just like disrespectful to the victims of the crime. Yeah, I think so too. So the GoFundMe had about $6,000 in it prior to the existence of it coming out in court. After it was mentioned in court, it took one day and it had raised more than $25,500. I mean, I guess they're smart and just know how to get that money. I guess. But I, I don't think it's morally right. No, I don't think so either. But, I mean, it sparked some controversy. So, like, they said it could be detrimental to the prosecution's case if the state wanted to ever call Shelly back into the stand. And then it caused big issues when on February 9th, it got out that another witness in the trial, attorney Mark Tinsley, who was actually Mallory Beach's family attorney, Mm -hmm. he had made a $1,000 donation to the fund. The defense brought up Tinsley's donation in court and asked Judge Newman to strike his testimony completely because of it. Judge Newman denied the motion (laughs) and the defense chose not to even raise the issue under cross-examination. And in fact, they declined to ask Mark Tinsley any questions at all. So I couldn't find the GoFundMe. I think it's been taken down now, but the biggest number I saw that the donations had reached was $29,814. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, hopefully she can take good care of Libby because... She doesn't have any more family. I know. I know. That's it. I mean, she has Buster, I guess, but I can't see Buster doing anything. Yeah. Buster can't even, like, make phone calls. No. Buster um, got kicked out of law school. Did you for see plagiarizing. That? Yeah. Didn't Dick Harpootlian, like, retweet something during the trial and he got, like, reprimanded by the judge? Oh, I saw something about that, but I never looked I into it. I forgot what it was. It, I think it had something to do with this. Oh. He, like, retweeted that, I don't know, something happened. But the judge was just like, you can't do that, babe. (laughs) You can't. Just stay off Twitter. Yeah. For real. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of Dick Harpoolian. (laughs) Say hello to my little friend. I love this picture of him so much. (laughs) I could have took a picture of this. (laughs) Yeah. He looks so happy. He loves this. This is his true element. So Dick Harpootlian thought he was so hilarious when on February 21st, he cracked a joke while 
pointing a gun at the prosecution table. (laughs) He made his joke during the testimony by Mike Sutton. And he, his joke was, so he had the gun and he was pointing it at the prosecution table. And he was like, it's tempting. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) And he was holding the 300 blackout rifle that belonged to Buster that was used as an example in the trial because it was basically the same gun as the one that had shot Maggie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That is just honestly so unprofessional. Like how does that make the defense look bad? Not good. Like it's tempting. Like, are you taking this serious? Like it's tempting to shoot the prosecution when you're defending someone who shot their family. Bad joke, dude. Not cool. Like just so (laughs) Off color. Off color. Yes. He was like, I don't know how to do this without pointing it at anybody. And then, I mean, people in the courtroom laughed. So, I mean, whatever. But they're bored out of their minds. (laughs) They're looking for any form of entertainment. Did they laugh at the diarrhea story? I don't think they did. I don't think so. Like, how can you not laugh at that? I died. Oh, my God. I know. Anyway, so all the fun concluded (laughs) and closing arguments were had and they finished the closing arguments Thursday, March 2nd. The jury was sent back to the deliberation room at approximately 3.35 p.m. And they were allowed to begin deliberating. They formally began deliberating at 3.50 p.m. At 7.14 p.m. the same day, I was working away on the podcast episode. I was, I remember I was looking at something. I was typing my little notes, trying to finish everything up. And I get a text from Ashley. It says, turn on the news in caps. (laughs) (laughs) And I got a text from my mom saying, guilty. And I was just like. Mom? <laughs> How did she even see that so quickly? Because they had the news on. Oh my God, dude. And I, I don't watch the news. I just... I, I don't have cable, so yeah, I, I don't just... either. You know, I immediately went to YouTube and looked for a live feed, but they were like walking him out. And so I had to rewind a little bit. But yeah, so three hours after they went and started deliberating, they came to a decision. Alec stood in the courtroom and was completely emotionless. He had been very emotional this trial. Mm-hmm. And they read the verdict, and he was found guilty of two counts of murder, one for Maggie, one for Paul, and two counts of possession of a weapon during the commission of a violent crime. He remained emotionless through the verdict reading. I remember when they said guilty, he blinked like five times in a row. Hmm. But he didn't break down and sob. No, he didn't sob. But he you didn't... could tell that it was like a wave of, wow. I just, I look at that, and then I look at the way he conducted himself through the trial, and mm-hmm. I'm like, I, I just feel like he was putting on a show through mm-hmm. the entire trial. Oh, for sure. Yep. Sentencing was held the next day at 9.30 a.m., Prosecutor Creighton Waters addressed the court and he asked for two consecutive life sentences. 
Judge Newman asked if any victims would like to speak, and Waters said they had made the decision to have victim advocates provide aid and service during the trial, and according to them, none of them wished to make any victim impact statements, which I was disappointed in. (laughs) I was disappointed, but not surprised, because people die. (laughs) Yeah. For less. Yeah. In this family. Oh, my God. If I was even a juror on this case, I would be careful with my life. I'm not even kidding. And then Alec is given the opportunity to address the court. And he said, quote, I'm innocent. I would never hurt my wife, Maggie, and I would never hurt my son, Pawpaw. (laughs) Really? You're still still on the Pawpaw? I think the pawpaw tracker was disabled before the sentencing. So I think there's like another two or three pawpaws that should be added onto that final count. <laughs> yeah, I know that he definitely repeated that exact same statement again. He did. He did. He did. Which was not profound or like anything. It, it made no difference that he said that. It made none. No, because A, no one believes you. And B, it's not an argument. But it was just him simply saying it. It wasn't like him like, oh my god, I will never do it. No, he he turned off the emotions by oh, this yeah. point. It's His performance was done. He didn't have to play it up anymore, so he wasn't gonna. Yeah, he was just like, I would never hurt my wife Maggie, and I would never hurt my son Pawpaw. Mm-hmm. End of story. Yeah. Judge Newman was just like, boy. Oh, I love Judge Newman. So Judge Newman made some statements as well. He said that he had to order Alec's grandfather's portrait be removed from the courtroom in order to ensure that a fair trial was had by both state and defense. He also added that he was disappointed that Alec was being tried because they had worked together in the past. And he said that Alec has such a lovely family. They're very friendly people, including Alec. And then Alec repeats the same freaking line at some point, saying that he would never hurt Maggie or Paul. And Judge Newman's reply was, quote, Well, and it might not have been you. It might have been the monster you become when you take 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 opioid pills. Maybe you become another person. So, I mean, you can tell what Judge Newman's opinion is on oh, for sure. on this whole thing. Oh, yeah. Judge Newman sentenced Alec to life in prison for the murder of Maggie Murdoch and life in prison for the murder of Paul Murdoch, the terms to be served consecutively. Upon leaving the court, Alec was handed over to the custody of the South Carolina Department of Corrections and taken to the Kirkland Correctional Institution in Columbia. All male inmates are originally taken to this facility after sentencing, which is one of the state's maximum security prisons. So once he's there, he's expected to have a two-month evaluation, including mental and physical health checks. And then this evaluation, along with the inmate classification system, I don't know what the fuck that is, but it will be used to determine which of South Carolina's highest security prisons Alec will be sent to spend the duration of his sentence. And the evaluation process takes about 45 days. 
so right after the trial, Alex's lawyer said they were going to file an appeal within 10 days. Well, they did. They actually filed it yesterday. Well, not yesterday when you're listening to it, but on Thursday, March 9th. So that's all I have for the trial. I just have a few extra things that have like come out since then. Mm-hmm. So Maggie's nail tech ended up speaking to Court TV. Maggie would go to her and get her nails done very frequently and... I guess when you have that sort of regular Mm -hmm. schedule with somebody, you're going to tell them things. Yeah, they're like not associated with you. So you can feel comfortable talking to them about your... Right. It's like a... It's like your hairdresser. It's like your... Yes. You know, that kind of thing. Right. She says that Maggie told her that she wanted to get a divorce. Oh. Yeah. Had not heard that. Yeah. And actually, the nail tech was subpoenaed to be a witness, but she was never called to the stand. Wow. She did take the time to say that Maggie was a lovely person and always happy no matter what was going on. Sometimes she would even show up in her pajamas because she was so, like, behind or whatever, Mm -hmm. but she was still in a good mood all the time. Yeah. So paparazzis have been following Buster around, and he got sick of it, so he called the police. Don't blame him. No. The New York Post took a photo of him through the blinds of his Hilton Head condo where he lives with his girlfriend, Brooklyn, and they published it in an article. So it's literally a picture of just a sliver of his face, and I assume her hand. Mm-hmm. But it's so invasive. Yeah. Like, Not what the cool. fuck? I feel bad for Buster. I. Yeah. No, people have thoughts on, like, maybe he was involved in Stephen Smith's murder. I don't know. Like, and until I do know, I feel bad for this guy. Right. Honestly. Right. Like, I think he's an orphan now. He has zero. Yeah, he is. Mom, dad, brother. Like. He has no family left. I mean. And he's still young. Like, yeah. He's, like, mid-20s or something. Yeah. And he's been living under his dad's shadow, like. Probably being, like, ordered around to do his bidding throughout all of this. And I don't know. I feel bad for him. And he's going to continue to be ordered around by his dad because he's going to have to call him every day in jail. And he's going to be telling him to put money on this guy's tab or, like, (sighs) do all this other bullshit that Alec can't do because he's in jail. Well, his girlfriend is going to law school. I hope she's smart enough. To realize that he needs to maybe, like, not associate anymore with his dad. I don't know. Yeah. I really just hope that they can have a good life. And if something comes out about Buster being involved in Stephen Smith's death, like, that's a different story. But until we know, I don't know. I feel bad for him. Yeah, I do too. So Brooklyn actually called the police to say that she and Buster were being followed by the media. And then police saw the car that was allegedly following them and pulled them over for speeding and making improper lane changes. Police found that the driver had what looked like to be a camera bag with them. And they ended up only giving him a warning. Mm -hmm. So like we said, Alex's brother Randy has spoken out since the trial So he said he has no doubt his brother is a serial liar and a thief. He says he's still having a hard time knowing whether it was Alec to pull the trigger, though. He said that he finds it impossible to picture someone he knew for decades as a protective husband and a father murdering his own family. I'm sure, but (laughs) evidence suggests otherwise. Right. God, yeah. 
Okay. Do you know about James the Juror? No. So maybe we should cut what I'm about to say, but I don't know why, but he gives me really weird vibes. <laughs> uh, look at his tie. That's all you need to know. <laughs> I'm sorry, James, but you have a weird tie and... And a corduroy jacket. <laughs> For what it's worth, the other juror that I've seen come out and speak, the one that said he didn't see Alec cry at all, he also gives me really weird vibes. So, Well, I mean, everyone who was a juror probably would give you weird vibes because they didn't know shit about this man. Like, what oh, are they doing instead? Yeah, what are you living under a rock? What are they doing? Well, this guy definitely knew because his brother was a witness in the trial. How does that work? His brother was... How does that work? His brother is a witness in the trial. He was one of the deputies that responded to the murder scene. I guess he was picked by the defense. You know how they can, like, Mm -hmm. the prosecution and the defense can pick jurors? Yep. The defense picked him. That's really weird. Yeah. Hmm. I think that's really crazy. So, anyway, he said that the jurors prayed together before they went into the deliberation room. And they prayed before they went out to give the verdict. And he said it was a huge factor in them being able to sit comfortably with their decision. I I can see that. Because think about how we felt. Like, we were affected by the testimony of Alec Murdoch. And they have to, like, sit through all this shit. And yeah. then make this decision. They see it in person. There had to be something. Like, I'm sure a lot of people are religious. and Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, they had to feel comfortable with that. And, like, I can't imagine having to make that decision. Oh, me neither. Being there, seeing this person, looking them in the eyes, and having to make this decision. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. So he said that when the 12 jurors first got into the deliberation room, they took a vote. And it was nine for guilty and three for not guilty. Mm -hmm. And then they took, what was it like? I mean, they said it took about 45 minutes. They went through the evidence and went through everyone's questions. And they took another vote and it was unanimous. He said the kennel video obviously was very crucial. He thinks there's a lot of evidence that points toward Alec, but the video was like the thing. That is the nail in the coffin for sure. It's freaking... It's evidence. <laughs> and there's just not enough time for him to be gone and not hear gunshots. And plus he lied. And plus he covered it up. Yeah. Idiot. I couldn't even imagine lying about anything if I found my family killed. Yeah. You know, I could not. If I were innocent, I would spew every detail I knew. Yeah. It's crazy. So that's, that is all I have. I did want to ask you, what do you think his motive was? So I think his motive was that he was about to be sued or mm-hmm. Paul Paul was about to be sued right. for a lot of money. I think it was $4 million. I'm not sure. I'm not sure exactly, but for the death of Mallory Beach. Like a wrongful death suit. Yes. And also I had heard that Maggie was not happy in the marriage She had started uncovering some of these financial issues. She had a private investigator looking at some of the finances. I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. And I don't know if they had a fight about it. Oh, man. 
But yeah, money problems. I think he was just so greedy. And yeah. that's what I think his motive was. What about you? Well, see, at first, when I first heard about this, I was like, oh, they must have had life insurance policies. Mm-hmm. And he wanted that money. But no. I don't think I mentioned this. They did not have life insurance policies. So he was not shooting them to gain money from a life insurance policy. Yeah, I think it was just, to be honest with you, I think almost that he was trying to gain sympathy because he had all this shit stacked against him. Mm -hmm. And who can blame the widowed man who just lost a son also (laughs) but it was continuing to move forward despite their deaths yeah i feel like it was almost like he was trying to kill two birds with one stone like he knew if he killed them the case about mallory beach would cease the digging into the financials from Maggie Woodsies. Yeah. See, I didn't know about the private investigator, so that makes sense. Like this divorce, if she wanted to get a divorce, yeah. Who knows like how much money she would get from that. That's all done. Yes. That's you would be ru- uh, ruined probably. I yeah. mean, so for several reasons, but that's just like the cherry on top. On top of it all, maybe maybe he was planning to frame someone and get like money from that. I don't know. Yeah. Also, the opioid addiction could have just, like, completely fucked up his entire brain that he thought this was a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. It could have been. He was desperate to keep his money so he could keep buying pills. Keep buying pills. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and you know what? It could be a combination of all of that shit. Because I think it is a combination. All that's going on in his life. So... All right, so I have a bunch of sources. I'm just going to rapid fire them. So Greenville News, The State, Fitz News, ABC 15 News, NBC News, Murdoch Murders, A Southern Scandal on Netflix. Caveat, I did not watch it entirely due to time constraints. (laughs) Men's Health, believe it or not. (laughs) (laughs) Low Country, The Murdoch Dynasty on HBO. Wikipedia, News Nation. Pretty Lies and Alibis podcast hosted by Gigi McKelvey. Long Crime Network watched all the trial footage there. CBS News, People, Yahoo.com for some reason, Distractify, New York Times, Washington Post, The Independent, Fox Carolina, USA Today, KRON4, Brandy Churchwell, who made a chart of all of the uh, specific times According to the cell phone data and the vehicle data, really helpful chart. And yeah, then, she's great. Yeah. Live 5 News. Wow, Mallory. <laughs> I feel like you need to be paid for what you do. <laughs> I do need to be paid, but we don't have a way for people to pay us yet. So <laughs> if you'd like to pay us. <laughs> if you'd like to pay us, my Venmo is. Yeah, for real. <laughs> no, we love it. Oh, my God. So, yeah, uh, we did it. Mallory, this was great work. Thank you. Great work. <laughs> Thank um, you. I am so sad that this is all over now. I'm really empty inside. I spent month and a half like obsessed, obsessed, mm-hmm. obsessed, obsessed with everything and now what do I do? I know. And now Lori Vallow's trial is not going to be televised and I am so mad because i want to spend 
hours and hours and hours and hours watching trial footage I of that. I want to watch every moment. Me too. And it's not going to happen, but it's just how it goes. Not every trial is televised. It should be. I mean, I think the grandparents of JJ and Tylee really wanted it to be. Yeah. So that all the relatives that are not in the area could still watch the trial. But yeah. I guess they don't care about victims. And now they have to home. fight to get into the fucking media viewing room, yeah. probably. Because I know there's going to be a ton of people that want, like, reporters and shit that want to oh, go yeah. in there. I'm even nervous that Gigi's not going to be able to get in to, like, report every day. Because I feel like, because they have, a, like, viewing room and then... An overflow room. I'm not worried about that. She will get in. She has been on this case since day one. Like, this has been her bread and butter. Like, she has reported on this, like, oh, well, since okay. the beginning. This is her thing. Yeah. She'll be there. Sweet. I'm looking forward to her reporting. We love you, Gigi. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you guys can always follow us on Instagram, Facebook. I'm probably going to make multiple Instagram posts. For this episode. Yeah, we could just like do all sorts of media. Yeah, on there's Instagram. a lot, a lot to include. So mm-hmm. I'll be working on that. And then join the conversation on Facebook. We have a chat room now that I didn't <laughs> know about. <laughs> yeah, I hope it's not like pinging everyone. I don't know if it is or not. It didn't fucking ping me, so I don't think so. Okay, good. <laughs> I had no clue about it until like weeks after it was made. <laughs> cool. Well, yeah. That's really cool and fun. Leave us a review, please. Nice. Only nice. <laughs> nice <reviews>. only. <laughs> and if you would like to send us any requests for a story to cover, that would be great. Email us at rabbitholehappyhour at gmail.com. Or just message us on Instagram or wherever because yeah. we'd love to hear from you guys. For sure. Next up is Ashley. Yeah. I don't know what I'm doing yet. <laughs> I feel like this is the first time you don't know what you're doing. Ugh, it's been You like, always know. I know. I don't now. I have like a few things that I'm thinking about, but it's not like pulling at me like, oh, yeah. It's because of this trial. I know. It's because I'm so wrapped up in this. Maybe I just need to. You need to let go and let God. I need to let go <laughs> and let God guide me to my purpose. Yeah. In my purpose driven life. Oh my, god. oh my god. Thank you guys for listening to this. I know it's been a journey and a hike, and this episode is so long. Just wanted to leave you with a little bit of audio from the sentencing when Judge Newman was speaking. So I'm gonna let that take us out. We'll see you guys next time. Love you, Judge Newman. <laughs> Bye guys. Bye. Within your own soul, you have to deal with that. And I know you have to see Paul and Maggie during the night times when you're attempting to go to sleep. I'm sure they come and visit you. I'm sure. All day and every night. I'm sure. And they will continue to do so. And, and reflect on the last time they looked you in the eyes as you looked the jury in the eyes.